Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello and welcome, tech enthusiasts, to 2024 and Happy New Year. You've tuned into the first episode for 2024, and what better way to start the year than by looking backwards with a fabulous flashback episode of Tech Talk. Today, we're diving into a digital delight, a curated collection of the creme de la creme of our topics from the first half of 2023. I've handpicked 20 terrific topics, each one a testament to the transformative power of technology. So tighten your seatbelts for a thrilling throwback through the most memorable and mind-blowing moments of Tech Talk. Let's launch into this luminous lineup. news, folks. The Australian Bureau of Statistics shows us that incidents of heart attacks are dropping significantly over the past 20 years. The bad news, folks, is that coronary heart disease is still a leading cause of death. And in 2020, get this, it was the leading cause of death in Australia. And that was the year that COVID hit. So it stands to reason that a stitch in time saves nine and early warnings could be a life saving and bring down the stats enormously. Matt, talk us through this new super convenient little blood pressure monitor that's by Valencell. So we have mentioned it before that checking things like your heart rate with a watch is quite incredible. It used mm. to always be something much more complicated to check A sphygmomanometer. Let me say that again. Sphygmomanometer. That's for blood pressure. For blood pressure, right? Correct. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's the cuff, if you want. I was yeah, just going to yeah, call right. it a cuff, but <laughs> I like what you said much better. Uh, so we had... Uh, heart rates being checked with watches. They said you could never do that because you had to have a chest band or something that actually was much closer to picking up the electrical shocks from your heart. Of course. Then we've got things like basic ECGs out of our watch. Mm. So the watch is becoming quite incredible on what it can do. But blood pressure, when you put a... Sphygmomanometer. ...on your arm and then go through the process to check that, you can buy electronic ones and that's yeah. great. They'll blow up and reduce they're down. They're not too expensive, but they're a little bit cumbersome. Cumbersome, that's the thing, James. Who wants to go and muck around and slide that thing on your arm and sit People there and aren't wait? sure if they're doing it right. No. Oh, it's yeah. just too complicated. So what we really need is a convenient way with a watch maybe, well, not quite there yet, but some convenient way to check our blood pressure so that we can just check some of those vitals. And we said at the beginning of the show, this is not trying to replace a doctor, but it's just keeping an eye on some of our vitals to see how our health looks. Check your heart rate, sure, might be racing, that might give you some sort of warning. And I had a friend recently who actually did have a heart rate alert from his watch that oh, said wow. his heart rate was a bit high, just sitting there resting and went and got checked out. He actually had an allergic reaction to something. So it was a good wow. way. I don't think he's going to die from that, but gee, it was a good bit of comfort that he had. Yeah. So having blood pressure checked with something that you just stick in your finger into a finger clip sounds quite incredible. And that's exactly where Valancel is at at the moment. Again, same with the urination tool. This hasn't got FDA clearance yet. But obviously at the point where it's working, going through the process, trying to get the FDA clearance for it so that you could actually sit there and, I don't know, once a week, once a day, depends how often you want to do it, just stick your finger in. Keep on your desk at work or something by the bedside. 
just something really easy. It might be good at work. So you're getting a really frustrating client, for example, and you feel your blood pressure going up. So you stick your finger in there and go, yep, I'm right. My blood pressure's going up. I've got to do something else. And they're still here and I'm still cranky. That's right. But I think this is this is incredible. The things that we're now getting to the point where we're checking, things that we thought we could never check before, mm. but checking things like heart rate, ECG, blood pressure with little tools that we can either wear or have on us. And I did start to think about this one getting a finger clip to measure our blood pressure is a starting point. I just wonder how long before our watch will have this built in. Mm. I have no idea whether it's possible, but again, I remember having conversations with people who knew lots of stuff that said that we'd never be able to measure blood pressure or ECGs with our watch. So Mm. measuring it with something like this sounds like it might get there. But at this stage, finger clip, put it in there. Of course, it's got an app that links to your app, gives you blood pressure. I think the more important thing with this sort of thing as well as it gives you that historical view. So you might say, Sunday nights, I'm just going to stick my finger in there, wait for 20 seconds, who knows how long it takes, and get my blood pressure. And just over time, keep an eye on that, oh, my blood pressure is going up. I better get my cholesterol checked. Oh, my cholesterol is going up. I better take some action about that, whatever it might be. But I think getting that historical view and also being able to take that to your doctor and say, Mm. Here you go. I'm not sure how accurate it is. I'm not sure if the blood pressure is perfectly accurate, but I've got a trend here that seems like it's going up. That doesn't look good. What can you tell me about it? All those sort of things. But I just think this is fantastic to see that we're getting to that point where you can check your blood pressure by sticking your finger in a finger clip. And if, if it's not easy to do, people won't do it. Um, and so on the head, yeah. Go through a complicated process. Mm. And, yeah, and, and those, those sphygmomanometers that you can use at home, the electronic ones, and they, they're not too expensive. You can buy them from the pharmacy. But to go through all the trouble of putting on the cuff and, and then, you know, working out what buttons to press or whatever, yeah. um, and then how to read it, yeah, it's just... It does, and it, it makes funny noises, and it blows mm. up and goes down, and oh, who wants to do all that? I've got more important things to do. So, yeah, these sort of things, fantastic. Chat GPT. If you haven't heard of this groundbreaking technology, then strap yourselves in, folks. The world is about to change in a big way. Now, as a teacher who began his trade in an age of the electronic typewriter, before the internet was really a thing even, I have seen a lot of changes in education and in how written material is produced, period. But there are thick grey clouds brewing overhead as ChatGPT era is is descending upon us. Matt, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I'll make it public that I've started my doomsday prepping already. (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) Well, I asked a good friend of mine to just write me a short paragraph about the status of ChatGPT. And I won't give you his whole answer that he gave me, but I'll just give you a couple of paragraphs. My fellow citizens, the time has come. The future is here. And it is called ChatGPT. This revolutionary AI chatbot website is here to change the world. And we must embrace it for our strength and determination. I know that many of you are eager to try ChatGPT for yourselves. And I assure you, we're doing everything in our power to make that happen. Our team is working tirelessly to accommodate the incredible demand for this groundbreaking technology. And on it goes. Of course, my good friend there was ChatGPT. <laughs> and it's pretty scary. You can ask a question of ChatGPT exactly like that and you'll get something get that sounds pretty impressive, even throwing in my fellow citizens to start the conversation. Mm. 
New York's so relatable. It is. <laughs> New York schools have actually banned the use of chat GPT, which I'm sure mm. every school in essence, because it sounds like plagiarization of some way or cheating in some way, shape or form. But the problem is that the New York schools that have banned the use of chat GPT have blocked the site in their computers on the school grounds. Yeah. But kids have computers at home. Kids have internet do. connections away from the school. So they can still go home and actually use it. And they've already seen evidence of people writing essays about the cause of the American Civil War or all sorts of things that are mm. completely written by chat GPT. And that's the scary part. Now, the interesting part at the moment is this is all still very early. It only launched at the end of November. So we've only had this going for a little over a month. Mm. It's really just trying to train the technology, get the technology better by questions being asked, then feedback being given, and then by the AI learning about that as it goes forward. So this is the really scary part. It's actually bad for scams as well because we see scams where the messages are written very poorly. They might have translated from another language. You can pick up some really obvious errors. But when you start to look at something written by ChatGPT, it's written with correct grammar. It's written to make it sound like uh, a human has written this. Yeah. And, and so the conspiracy <laughs> theorists out there are not going to trust anything that's written anymore. No, but here's the other interesting part. And I'm going to become a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> I actually said to ChatGPT, how do I know if an essay is written by a human or AI? I thought it goes straight to the source. If yeah. we want to know how to we detect this, we can surmise all we like. But let's go and ask ChatGPT itself. And I got an answer back that said something along the lines of, if you want to see if something's written by AI, then you need to look for the absence of personal experiences or emotions or maybe some analysis, some human analysis mm. might be in there, and also some inconsistencies in the writing style. But, gee, some of those things are pretty tough to answer, yeah. aren't they? And in your field, if you had a student writing something at a very scientific level, you don't expect them to put emotions in. You don't want no, no, you don't want emotive writing at all. No, that's right. You want factual writing. You want things that are devoid of emotions, devoid of their opinions. You want some analysis, obviously. Uh, yes, our, our our big our gateway there is is the analysis. We yeah, need, yeah. That's right. Need to ask questions that require students to to think about things mm. rather than just regurgitate facts. So that'd be the way. But gee, that's a tough gig for any teacher at school mm. or university to read essays analyzing the work that's been done by the student to see whether the student deserves a certain grade, but then in the back of their mind also thinking, I'll just keep an eye out for the analysis and the way it's been done and do I think an AI has written this or not. So, How long before ChatGPT learns how to do analysis? <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Well, to put some experiences in to learn from some of the answers that ChatGPT or other similar tools gets back. But this is incredibly scary, incredibly scary for educators, but incredibly scary for a whole range of things. I hope, I hope they're all going to follow Isaac Asimov's laws for robots as well. Well, that's another thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and again, just looking at a journalist and seeing the stories that a journo might write 
And again, seeing how that analysis might be done for a journalistic story. And again, you'd expect a, a true journalist to remove emotions and mm. personal stories from a story they're writing about the news. But are all those journos out there now thinking, do I have a job tomorrow? Is ChatGPT going to answer all yeah. these? So go and have a look at it. It's, a, it's really exciting. <laughs> Quite amazing. Uh, but again, this is just one of so many. And these are available in the public domain. That's the incredible part. It's not some university researchers no. playing with it. This is in the public domain because they figure that the learning will happen much quicker if more people are using well, this Well, I was watching um, the news uh, last night, actually, and there was an academic from um, one of the leading universities in the country. And um, she was saying, we've got to learn how to embrace this and make it a tool that becomes useful for us. Well, I suppose that's right, isn't it? It's not about saying... But that's still daunting, I've got to say. It is, it is. <laughs> but it's, it's probably a bit like standing at the ocean shore and putting your hand up and saying, I just want to stop the ocean coming in. I yeah. sort of stop the tides. Well, you're not going to do that, so how do you work with the tides? And in this case, maybe our fear is misplaced maybe we need to embrace and see mm. how we can take advantage of this yep, it's too too late the the ball is already already rolling if i told you that the best-selling sedan in australia for the last three decades was the toyota camry you'd probably save your surprised faced emoji for something else maybe you might have hoped that maybe some of those years could have been more successful for falcons and commodores if you're a red-blooded aussie but Regardless, for a fairly standard five-seater sedan, the Toyota Camry makes complete sense as the most popular option in Australia. Well, that was until December the 31st, 2022, when it lost its 28-year perch at the top of the chart to the new champion that's got Matthew Dickerson looking very smug indeed. <laughs> well, let's go back to the Camry for a minute. I've bought a few Camrys in my lifetime, and I still... They're a good car, and that's the were. reason why they're on top, right? And I still remember the first one I bought because I went along, and I was a Holden fan. I'd had a Holden Ute. My first car was a Holden Ute, HZV8 Ute. And I went along to buy a Commodore and took one for a drive, and that was all fantastic. And a friend of mine said, you should just go and have a drive of one of those... Camry things. I went, no, I don't think so. I I love my Holden, I love my Commodores, it'll be fine. Finally, for some reason, I don't know why, I went, okay, I'll go and do it. I'll I'll keep this friend of mine happy. And I went and took a Camry for a drive and I went, oh, wow, that's actually pretty good and the Mm. price seems quite reasonable and it seems like a more modern vehicle. That old Commodore seemed like it was a bit old-fashioned now. So it didn't take me long after I drove it. Oh, you're so fickle. I I am, apparently. (laughs) So it just seemed so much better. So I bought a Camry, and we bought a few Camrys, both personally and in one of my businesses. We had a few Camrys over the years. So the Camry has been a great car. I've, I've had a hybrid Camry as well, so they moved on with the times there. But when you look at the top 10 sedan sales for 2022, the Camry's still up there. It's number two. And when you look at sales, 2021, they sold 13,081 Camrys in Australia. It dropped back to 9,538 in 2022. So mm. a bit of a drop, which then gives you an opportunity. Before I say the number one, let's just look at some of the other ones. Number three, Mercedes-Benz C-Class. Number four, and there's quite a big series. gap between two and three there as well. It's there is, noting. isn't there? That's right, yeah. Number five is another Mercedes-Benz. I'll skip number six for the moment. Number seven, Mazda 6. Number eight, Skoda. Number nine, BMW 4 Series. Number 10, Alexis. So lots of traditional brand in there. But number one with 10,877 sales, so about 12, 1,300 more than the Camry, is the Tesla Model 3. Who'd have thunk? 
unbelievable. Number six is the Polestar 2. Uh, Polestar, of course, is the EV variant of the Volvo mm. brand. So you've got two EV models in there in the top ten. So the next thing that I started thinking was, wow, the sales figures for EVs must be going through the roof. Mm, not quite. Ah. As we know, it was at about, it was less than 2%, I think 1.95%, we've discussed it before, about 1.95% for 2021 overall EV sales in this nation. So less than 2%, not that exciting. We normally sell about a million new cars a year in this country. Mm. So you're talking about maybe 20,000 cars. EVs overall for 2022 hit 33,410, so a bit over 3%. That's a an increase, if you like, it's an increase of 50% over the previous year, but you're coming off a very low base. Then you start to think about it, hold on, the Tesla Model 3, 10,877 sold out of 33,410, that's not a bad percentage. Then add in the 8,717 Model Y, which yours is one of those, 8,717, you start to get up towards 20,000 Teslas sold out of the 33,000 EVs sold. So you're in a pretty healthy position if you're Tesla in terms of the market share in the EV market. But what's slowly happening now is you're getting more and more of these different vehicles that are starting to come along. Mm. And sure, Tesla's way out in front at the moment in terms of their sales, but other vehicles are coming along as well. But I'm pretty excited, you're right, the fact that you've got an EV on top of the charts in the sedan, the medium vehicle sedan category. So... it's it's a, it's a start anyway. I was in Melbourne recently and uh, was I saw the the showroom for Genesis and I, that's a new brand that's come out of EV and I'd be interested to see how they go over the next couple of years. That was a pretty slick looking car. They are actually so that's the luxury brand or luxury EV brand mm. of Hyundai. Yeah, so, right. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, and they do. You're right. They do make some nice cars there and so you're going to see more of that. A bit like the Polestar version and I suppose companies like Lexus started that a long time ago as well. Lexus came out with the luxury car version of Toyota mm. and again other companies have done that. Acura did that for Honda but some of them are going to be more specifically focused on the EV variant of that particular brand. So look, it's getting there. Big news. I'm pretty keen to see what it looks like in another year's time. And on the back of all of this, you think that Tesla would say, fantastic, our sales are going well, but just to really start to squeeze some of those good old-fashioned ICE vehicles, they've dropped their prices. Dropped, I said, their prices. So when you say ICE, you mean internal combustion engine? Correct, that's right. So Tesla has dropped their prices by 17% in Germany for the Model Y, by 20% for the Model Y in the US. So they're dropping their prices by large chunks there. Now, they're saying that as they get better at the manufacturing process, as they become more efficient at the manufacturing process, they can start to drop their prices. Now, I'm sure they're still making good margins on their cars, but the fact they're doing that, gee, that starts to ramp up the pressure, doesn't it? I was on the website the other day, and the Tesla Model 3 was at 68 thousand and so that's very competitive i think well it is but it gets better than that i've had one on order for one of my staff since about august last year and i think i mentioned it previously just at the end there it's almost ready to be delivered it's about a week away from being delivered they sent an email and said sorry prices have changed it's now gone down by a bit over a thousand dollars so it'll drop down to under sixty seven thousand dollars for that particular model so it's 
And when you do the maths over five years, when you're paying so much less to, to, to charge this up than to pour petrol into the tank yeah. um, and less servicing as well, um, yeah, you're really saving yourself as much as $30,000 over five years. It, it really depends on the kilometres you do. The more you do, the more mm. the saving is. But the reality is what you should do if you're going to buy a vehicle is forget the ticket price. What you should do is look at the total cost of ownership. How much is this car going to cost me to own for the next say, five years, pick a mm. time frame that you'd normally keep a car for. So it's the initial price, and then it's the sale price. So that's how much you're going to lose on that over that time frame. And then it's the servicing, then it's the fuel, then it's all the things that go into that car over the next five years. Add all those up, do the comparison between petrol and EV, and suddenly you'll find, wow, EVs mm. are pretty attractive there. Mm. Airbus is a name synonymous with big planes that carry lots of people all at once. It's their thing. But as many pilots will tell you, they also like to perch themselves at the cutting edge of technology as well. Now, Airbus is trialling autopilot landings using bug-eye camera technology. And Matthew, it's caused a real stir among Aussie pilots. It's caused a stir amongst pilot associations, amongst pilots, amongst possibly the travelling public as well. So you've got to talk us through what bug-eye technology is, yeah? Well, I'm going to get to that in a moment. But before I get to that, I want to go back to probably the movie I referenced the most is good old Flying High, or as it was called (laughs) in the US, Airplane! (laughs) Exclamation mark. And in that, of (laughs) course, you you had... can't be serious. (laughs) I am, and stop calling me Shirley. In that, we had Captain Clarence Over and co-pilot Roger Murdoch. And, of course, in the movie, they both got sick. They both ate the fish. Mm-hmm. They both got sick, and then there was no one to fly the plane, of course. Any passengers know how to fly the plane, and on it goes. You forgot the bit about the autopilot as well, the um, well, blow-up. Otto, <laughs> yeah, Otto, the autopilot that, uh, that blows up in there. So one of the things that pilots do in planes at the moment is they do actually have a process where they eat different meals because you've got – Two pilots ah, on a plane, yeah. and you don't want them. They've obviously all watched Flying High. You don't <laughs> want them to eat the same, same meal. The same food poisoning. Exactly right. Goodness now, me. the number of times you've had an incapacitation of a pilot in an aircraft is probably minimal, but you've got that we in there. We wouldn't know about it if it happened anyway. So. Well, hopefully not, <laughs> but it's minimal. There, there was an incident recently where one pilot actually died, so you go, phew, thank goodness there were two pilots mm. in the cockpit. But let's go back a long time, back in the early days of commercial flights. If you could afford to fly, I mean, a transatlantic flight probably cost you half the cost of a car. It was a ridiculous cost. But if you went up to the cockpit, and you probably were allowed to go back in the cockpit <laughs> in those days, there were five people in the cockpit. So you had, obviously, the two pilots, but you also had an engineer. You had a, a navigator. A navigator, yeah. that's right. And you had someone else that was, I don't know, hanging around just to make sure everyone was doing their jobs. <laughs> the guy who got the coffee. <laughs> so I think you actually had a radio, a radio operator yeah, as well. Probably, so, yeah, yeah. so a radio operator, a navigator, a flight engineer, and then the two pilots. Now, we would think it would be a bit silly to have five people in the cockpit of a mm. plane now. And obviously technology started to take over some of those particular roles. A navigator, sure, we've just got this that we put it in now and it tells us where we're going and off we go. And mm. a flight engineer and, and the radio operator, it all seems a bit silly now. But there were some major dramas, probably not so much from getting from five down to three, but when they wanted to go from three down to two, and we're talking the late 70s, early 80s, there were pilot strikes there were oh really yeah wow. some, some pretty serious meetings amongst airlines and pilot associations about the loss of these people from all the cockpit. All these navigators were worried about being out of a job, and all yeah. these flight engineers 
what other job am I going to have where I get to push buttons in and out when something doesn't work and reboot it? Mm. I mean, I'm sure there's something much more important than that. But that was a major issue at the time. We got past that. Obviously, some negotiations were had and they guaranteed jobs for a certain number of years, I'm sure, or redundancies, a whole range of things. But we all feel quite comfortable with two pilots in there now. Airbus is talking about maybe not getting to zero pilots on a plane, but that's down the track, I'm sure, but they want to get back to one pilot on a plane because they believe that it's safe enough now to get to the point where you can fly a plane with one pilot. The pilot can do all the work. It's only if something happens. But then if something does happen, you don't want to be going out looking for a, mm. a pilot that used to fly in the Air Force, no, like flying like the away. the long-haul flights from Sydney to, to Los Angeles or whatever, 15 hours or whatever, that's a long time to sit in a cabin by yourself without talking to anyone. <laughs> it is a long time <laughs> to sit there. But I think on some of those flights they might still have a couple of pilots, but not maybe a couple of teams. But the the plan is by the year 2030, you're looking at some commercial airlines are hoping to get to the point where they do away with the second pilot. Mm. So they just have the single pilot. So now get back to what you mentioned about the technology that Airbus is working with. So there's this concept called biomimicry. And this is where we take the wonderful things that happen in nature and try and adapt that in technology. And that's exactly what they're doing here dragonflies apparently fly. I don't know how they work this out because I don't know how many dragonflies I've interviewed to get this information, (laughs) but apparently they can recognise landmarks and they can actually divert and change their flight path by looking at landmarks, recognising those, and then moving on to where they need to get to. And so they've used that same technology in setting up cameras around planes. And sure, you've got GPS systems to be able to say you are in a certain position, but the cameras also can get then higher levels of accuracy about landmarks around them. And say, for example, they had to divert from one airport to another. Oh, no, there's been a problem with that airport. There's been some sort of spill or there's been some disaster or an emergency. Mm-hmm. So you've got to divert from Sydney, Kingsford Smith Airport, Port to Bankstown Airport. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Well, sure, you might rely on the flight navigation systems, but when you're getting down to landing, they're using these recognition of landmarks and basically almost like a human would do to say, right, I can't land there. I'll look over here. There's somewhere I can land. Let's change the path very over cool. there. It is very cool. So they believe when you get this sort of technology and all the other systems that we've already got on planes, with all the positioning systems, with the radars, etc you can get to the point where the plane could take off, fly and land completely by itself. They're not saying do that yet, <laughs> but they're saying one pilot in there can be involved, engaged in that process. But if something happens to that pilot, well, the plane can take over from that. The real question, I think, and this will be the critical thing, I'm sure you'll get to the stage where some aircraft, some commercial aircraft will have one pilot. And there may be some advertising that goes on with some airlines who will say, fly with us, we're cheaper because we've only got one pilot because we're not paying Mm. all those extra wages. And other airlines will say, fly with us, we're safer. Because we've got two pilots. We've got two pilots. (laughs) And it will be a little bit dearer to fly with that aircraft or that airline. Which one will you go with? And that's the real question here. People do go with cheap carriers now. get a cheaper ticket if you taste test the pilot's food, the single pilot's food, (laughs) if you're prepared to be the the tester. (laughs) Or maybe the the single pilot's got to bring his own food on the plane with him, I'm sure. But but this is where we're headed. Airbus believe they've got a solution. Other airlines, I'm sure, would say to Airbus, yes, if you can show us that this is going to work effectively, then we're happy to buy planes off you. But just even the the cockpit, imagine having a cockpit with five people in there, the refits, the retrofitting they would have had to do to get it back to that space saving there. So it's a changing world. One of the things that one of the Polar Association said is it's all well and good, but 
you might be able to fly that plane autonomously without pilots, but what happens if there is a computer failure, which sometimes happens, <laughs> then you're in yeah. a whole lot of trouble. I don't even want to think about it. Don't even talk about that. Last week, we brought you the good news about a shift in sedan sales with the Tesla Model Y taking line honours for 2022 here in Australia. Well, along the same lines on a global scale, EV sales around the world are growing and the stats are significant, Matt. I don't like to be a pedant, but we actually talked about the Model 3 topping the sales last week. Oh, not sorry, the not y, the Model Y. But you'd be surprised because Model Y does seem okay. to gain more publicity. And I'd, okay. I'd guarantee that this year... I was sure I read Y in my notes last week, but anyway. <laughs> so Model Y will top it this year, I guarantee. But Model 3, only because the Model Y was so hard to get last year. So well, Model 3 is a cheaper model too, isn't it? Model 3 is a little bit cheaper. It's been around for a bit longer, but everyone wants that slightly larger SUV style Model Y mm. so this year so you're just getting ahead of yourself there mm. Model Y will top it this year okay. I, I guarantee but right, we'll Model 3 last sound bite for this time next year <laughs> that's right but yes you're right across the world there's momentum gathering not so much in Australia we'll come back to Australia but across the world some pretty exciting numbers coming out so 10% market share for the first time so it's hit 10% mm. market share mainly driven by China and Europe not driven by Australia, definitely not driven no. by Australia, and not even driven by the US. So there's a sort of bit of a lag there in the US. But it's interesting because you've got this increase in EV sales while the broader car market in, in general had a bit of a drop. So not a huge drop, but it was a, a little bit of a drop overall. So you see some of the more traditional manufacturers and their sales dropped a bit, which they went, oh no, this is bad news. But companies that were focused on some of their EV sales started to go up. When you start to look at the numbers, though, you start to get some impressive numbers. 7.8 million EVs were sold mm. last year. That's wow. getting pretty good. That's an increase of 68% over the previous year. Admittedly, it's a lower base that it's going from, but an increase of 68%, nonetheless, is not too bad. Europe had an increase, sorry, Europe accounted for 11% of the overall sales. China, 19% of overall sales. So, mm. in other words, 90% of all cars sold in China were EVs last year. So, they're getting there. Yeah, and that, that's not su that surprising. I mean, China can really jump on uh, technology like this and, they and can. run with it. And they'll become a bit leaders. In and that. they've got a big population. So, when yeah. it becomes a percentage point change for China, that's a lot of numbers. Plug-in hybrids, if you added those in with EV sales in Europe, for example, then you got over 20% across Europe. But I like to focus on just the EVs in general. You're a purist. I am a purist, that's right. When you look at the US, they certainly lag behind. The numbers sound all right, 807,000 EVs sold in the US last year, but it's only 5.8% of all sales, which is up from 3.2% the previous year. Mm. Now, when you consider Australia, is it about 3%? So they just hit 3% in Australia last year in 2022. So if you look at that and compare that to the US, well, the US basically doubled almost from 3.2 to 5.8. So maybe there's a bit of hope for us this year. Maybe we could get from that 3% last year up to maybe 6% or even more if if we do that. But again, you see that Tesla's still the world's dominant EV maker, but some of the more conventional automakers are starting to get more models out there and mm. starting to really mix up the competition, which is great. That's what we need, obviously. In Germany, they had 25% of all new vehicles produced last year were EVs. And in December, more EVs were sold than conventional cars. So it started That's to... catching on. It's right. They started and, to and people up. are saying, yeah, I'm pretty happy with my EV, you know, and... Um Runs well, and the electricity is cheaper than the gasoline. Yeah, that's and that's right. The running costs, the enjoyment driving costs, all those things. So new car sales overall fell 1%. So again, when you look at those 
sales increases, then it's good to see that as a comparison against traditional uh, vehicle sales. And then when you look at the market leaders, so Tesla number one, BYD, Build Your Dream, is yeah. apparently what that stands for. I don't know if someone just I, made I, that up. Or I think we'll be hearing more of that name. I think we will. So they're number two in the world at the moment. It's a Chinese oh, manufacturer. Wow. Um, SAIC Motor Corp is number three. They're Chinese as well. And then VW, number four. Notice there's no Toyota in there. And yeah. again, they've got a fair bit of work to We've do. We've talked about that before. In the US, Ford was second to Tesla. Then Hyundai and Kia were the next ones in there. So some mm. interesting brands in there, interesting names. It's going to look... And the Hyundai electric car is the Genesis model, isn't it? It's Well, that's the luxury version oh, of right, it. Okay. So Hyundai do have... Because we, we had a look at some of those cars <laughs> when we were in Melbourne and uh, we had to wipe off our drool. <laughs> That they look very nice. They yeah. very nice. So I've got a Hyundai EV. I've got a Hyundai Ionic 5, for example. So Hyundai do make their own EVs. Kia also make their own EVs. But then Genesis is a luxury mm. brand as well. So you've got some of those more traditional, I would say, progressive manufacturers who are starting to get into it. And they don't like it. I'm sure if you're a, a Ford motor company with all the history going back to Henry Ford, I'm sure you don't like these little upstarts, the BYDs, the mm. Teslas coming along, taking away your market share. Who do you think you are? I'm mm. the major market share supplier in this country. What are you doing coming along? So I think they'll really be getting on there. Ford, obviously, you've got the F-150 Lightning. And so that's a big deal, isn't it? The F- it F-150. Is. Um, and that's just the first of the electronic uh, well, utes that's right. models that, that they'll make. They'll and I think they're Mac-E, they're, they're uh, Mustang. They'll mm. certainly go okay with that. So interesting market, but getting to 10%, you know, that mm. momentum's gaining, gaining, and we think that's a pretty good increase to 10% market share this year. Gee, if I was going out on a limb, I'd say I wouldn't be surprised if we double that, and I wouldn't be surprised if we got to tw- – that's a big number, 20%. <laughs> Maybe I'm going too far there. But <laughs> Here we go, folks. Are you writing this down? Yeah, actually, speaks? I'm, I'm yeah. going to go with it. I'm going to, say, I'm going to say 20% market share by the end of 2023. It just oh, seems wow. like people are – getting onto it, that people are understanding it. And if petrol prices get going up, mm. then people are going to sit there and say, I need an alternative that's better than the current alternative. Well, James, today is a pretty exciting day. Let me go back to the 27th of March, 2021. Um, on that day, Park Run was cancelled in Dubbo. We went out to Narromine and ran in their Park Run. My daughter often reminds me that she came home as the first female, but Park Run is not a race, I remind her. It is when you come first, she responds. Hmm, I digress. My daughter's running success is not what I want to focus on today. Um, That afternoon, you and I sat down to record our first episode of Tech Talk. We did the same the following week. After we built up a few episodes, we released them to the world on the 5th of May with a total of six episodes released over the next five days. Since the 10th of May, we have released a new episode every Monday at 9 a.m. without fail. Um, Jump to today and we are recording our 100th episode. Woo-hoo! With COVID separations, remote sessions, Riverwalk recordings, and even being located in different countries, we have brought the latest tech to our listeners each and every week. We have reached finalist status in the Australian Podcast Awards and regularly feature as the highest-ranked Australian-produced technology podcast on Apple Podcasts. Most importantly, the feedback we receive from our listeners is instructive and highly complimentary. But after bringing you our 100th episode today, just like a cricketer on reaching a century, we will take guard again and continue on without resting on our laurels. 
Thank you, James, for your insight, intelligence, humor, and always inquisitive mind. The podcast would not be a success without your invaluable input. Onward and upward with the next 100 episodes. Yippee! Well, thanks, Matt. Um, I appreciate your sentiment, and I love coming up with a different intro for each of those episodes. That is over 900 topics we have covered in that time. Wow. Um, I love the idea of going back and listening to some of those eerie episodes. Whoops. I will put my teeth back in early episodes and seeing what concepts were successful and which ones not so much. But enough reminiscing, as you say, onward and upward. Cool. Oh, sorry, James, I'm a bit busy today. Hopefully my AI friends filled you in on this caught, being our 100th episode. Caught me off guard there. <laughs> it's a bit scary, isn't it? It was, I must admit, a slightly Americanized version of myself and yourself. But it's not too bad, and that's a free tool. I uploaded a minute of my voice and a minute of your voice and then typed in the text from that, and there we go. So we've done 100 episodes <laughs> in, the, in the flesh, but maybe the next 100 wow. episodes we can just do in the virtual. No, yeah. we're not. We won't, we won't do that to you people out well, there. We're never unfooled. We will keep being here in the flesh, and uh, we sit here and do it face-to-face, and as much as we possibly can, we'll do that. Only when we're busy with other stuff, we'll do the – no, I won't, I won't even joke about it. <laughs> I think that's will, incredible, though, to hear your own voice. Um, with a different accent. Yeah, and if I paid more for some of the paid services, I could have really removed that Americanism out of it. So that, I wanted to demonstrate what a free account could do, and that's mm. something that, that literally took me a minute. It uploaded that, and then so a couple of minutes to upload some voice samples, and then I simply typed text in and said, generate voice. So I could type in any text and make it sound like that person. Made me sound like I was from California. <laughs> That's right. And uh, <laughs> surf's up, dude. I, I just all of a sudden started generating a whole lot of different memories in my head of days on you know, in San Diego and what uh, I'm making it all up now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's quite incredible. Anyway, I'm very proud and happy that we've hit 100 episodes, as you can tell with my AI voice, but it's actually just a, an indication of where things are headed. It's yeah. only been 100 episodes, but... Already we're talking about And we'll get everyone questioning what's real and what's not real and, uh, oh, good. (laughs) That's right. And you'll even see that in those couple of samples there, I I threw some ums and some ahs in because that's what people do when they're talking. So if you're trying to make it sound like it's real, and even the pace that varied there slightly, that that wasn't me. I wasn't doing that. The cadence of the speech. yeah. Yeah, I typed it in and just said, generate my voice, and away it went. And so it changed the volume. It changed the pitch and the intensity. It got a few things a little bit wrong there, and maybe you would have put some more stress on different words than that did, but it still... It sounded like someone sitting there having a conversation. It was weird. And all of a sudden I started picturing your face as some something completely different to, to who you were. Your voice wa- wasn't yours, but it was yours. And yeah. I just, yeah, oh, just played with my head. Yeah, yeah, it's very freaky. <laughs> now, don't do this at home, folks. Don't pretend to be someone and put words in someone else's mouth. That's not what it's designed for. I'm not sure what it's designed for, actually, <laughs> oh, no. because that sounds like what you'd want to do. for evil. That's right. <laughs> a phone call or publishing something on the net and said, look what this friend of mine said about someone else. You could cause all sorts of trouble, yeah. but don't do that, okay? Yeah. Just use it to play with and have fun with. You do have to click on something when you first go into the account to say that I have permission to generate this person's voice, they gave me permission. So I, I didn't actually ask you for that beforehand, James. Sorry, but I just thought <laughs> no, no, no. it'd be nice to hear your voice as part of the initial podcast. So yeah. it is wow. really scary, but also absolutely amazing. Yes, absolutely amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. 
I'm not sure how I feel about this first story, though. Part of me feels a sense of satisfaction that the right people have copped a a well-deserved slap in the chops from the beast of their own making. But then I think the bad news is that there's no real happy ending to this story. The beast is loose and there is no one to tame it. I'm talking about Google's AI chatbot Bard and it's made a mistake that's cost its puppeteer several weeks' worth of lunch money. Matt, give the people the good slash bad news. Gee, you have expensive lunch, don't you? $144 billion it wiped off yeah. the market capitalisation of Google. Now, we've talked about ChatGPT. Talking about biting the hand that feeds you. No, <laughs> so so we, we've talked about ChatGPT and we've talked about the fact that Microsoft, their big move there is to move that into Microsoft Bing. So as your preferred search engine, that old-fashioned concept of typing in something you want to search for and then getting a number of sites to come up and then you click on each of those and get the information you want. Ah, oh, that's just so yesterday. <laughs> so Microsoft... <laughs> too, many, too many finger injuries from all that time. <laughs> exactly right. Microsoft, with their experimentation they've been doing with OpenAI and ChatGPT, it's all good fun and I've been playing with it and using it for different things and I find it quite fascinating and you get some answers. Sometimes you think, hmm, doesn't sound quite right, but sometimes you get a summary of information you go, wow, that saved me going through four or five sites at least you know, two minutes worth of time it saved me there. But with Bing, they believe where you'll go with your searching will be, you won't expect to see a bunch of sites that will give you information when you look at them. You'll just have the answer after it goes and takes information from a range of sites. Google was caught with their pants down to a certain extent and said, well, we've been working on this for a long time, but we didn't think it was quite ready. But we've got Google Bard, so Mm. we'll roll that out straight away. That's our direct competitor. And they actually created some ads with Google Bard and they went forward to show how wonderful Google Bard was. But someone in the, do you want to just check this is okay department, just missed a little problem. Oh, no. One of the questions was, pretend I wanted to explain some information about the James Webb Telescope to my nine-year-old. So that was the question asked. Pretty in- innocent question and something that would be right up the alley of uh, ChatGPT or some AI to put it together. And it came back with a quite sensible answer about the James Webb Telescope, except it said that it was the first telescope to take a picture of an exoplanet. And people that are in the know, people that are astronomers maybe, people that just have good general knowledge went, no, that's not right. Back in 2004, there was a European space telescope that took photos of exoplanets or an exoplanet for the first time. And when they analysed it a bit further, Google Bard found that the James Webb Telescope took its first photo of an exoplanet. But it didn't quite get the interpretation right ah. and gave the information out to say that it was the first telescope to take ah. a photo of an exoplanet. So straight away, people went, ah, oh, Google Bar's not very good. It gives you incorrect information. <laughs> oh, no. And you can see how it was yeah. close. It was so yeah. close. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see a nine-year-old getting that wrong, going, oh, Dad, do you know that it was the first one? To, oh, it's not quite right, son. It was a different interpretation of that bit of information. So straight away on the back of that, the share price of Alphabet, oh, the parent company. Just on the strength of that. On the strength of that, it dropped dramatically. And I said $144 billion, 7.7% was wiped wow. off its share market value. On the flip side of that, Microsoft's share price went up 
by about 0.5%. So people didn't transfer all their confidence across to Microsoft. They just said, hmm, lack of confidence there in Google. So it's quite interesting. Now, we've talked before about Google, 93.9 or 94%, let's call it, market share. Now, when they do that, and when Microsoft Bing, if it seems to work quite effectively, suddenly that 94% market share might be at risk from Google, which you wouldn't have thought just a month ago. Imagine, you'd think I was crazy if I said that 94% market share, their market dominance is being questioned. But now we're going, oh, this Microsoft Bing, maybe it's going to actually make some inroads into that Google market share. So it's a fascinating spot at the moment. I just don't know where it's going to end up, but it's exciting to be watching on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, seeing how these things go when they trip up too. Oh, wow. And while we're on the subject of cybersecurity, charity scammers are now using AI-generated art to further their underhanded cause. Matt, what do we need to be wary of now? I've actually been having a lot of fun with DALI 2, not to do charity scams. Let me just <laughs> emphasise that for the moment. But that's the one where you can create your own artwork. Yeah, that's right. And you'll type in something, you you want a picture of a car sitting on a cliff, about to fall over the cliff with a blue sky in the background. And it draws four versions for you of that. And you go, oh, I like that one there. I'll just use that one. Thanks very much. Mm. It's really good in what it does. Sometimes when you put people in it, it doesn't do people perfectly, but it's still not too bad. It seems to struggle with people the most, but other more abstract things it does a really good job with. So I've been having fun with that. I've been using it for social media posts and just using it just to play with in general, and I'm I'm quite fascinated by it. But, of course, our good friends, the scammers, we've talked about them before, they just can't help themselves. So the latest thing they've been doing is generating some art that's really pulling at your heartstrings. So when we've had, for example... Uh, earthquake in Turkey and Syria, they've been generating images purporting to be people that are in these earthquakes in tragic situations. So, for example, emergency personnel pulling a baby out Mm. of some rubble. And you could do that. You could literally go in and say, give me an emergency person pulling a baby out of rubble, and you'd be five seconds later, there's a bit of artwork for you. So they've been using these pictures, making it look like they're from these real situations, and then putting up links to say, please donate, help these poor people out, look at this situation. Now, when you saw that, when you saw some fireman pulling a baby out of rubble, you'd be thinking, oh, that poor baby, parents are probably deceased in that. Oh, why wouldn't you donate some money? But of course, they're not real and some of these photos aren't real. And one got picked up by the fact that, as I said before, sometimes it doesn't draw people that well. One of the firemen carrying a baby over had two noses. Well, almost had six fingers. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, and they oh, were okay. from Tasmania. Apologies to every Tasmanian, but but it oh, was no. it was one of those things that you looked at it and it just looked like a, an old picture. And then you looked again. You went, you know, that hey. just looks a bit funny. There was a thumb and five fingers there, and you went, mm, that's not quite right. Oh. And it might have been possible. There are people out there with six fingers. It might have been possible that that was a fireman with six fingers. But a bit more investigation, suddenly you work out that it's a scam. So just what won't they sink to to try and get money out of it? So we get all these clever Be tools. Be on your toes, out. folks. Be on your toes, that's right. Again, where can you go to donate some of this money? That's the problem. There are charities, legitimate charities, legitimate causes around the world that I'm sure are missing out on money now because people are so concerned about being scammed, they don't want to go and donate their money to a scammer. And I think what we, we can do now is we know that, well, we're getting used to at least, someone, um, something pops up on your feed or uh, by email and it says, oh, here, be wary about this or donate money to this or whatever. 
then that's your cue if you're keen not to click on any links there, <laughs> but to go through an, another source to find that charity, to find that organisation that needs your details, to do whatever. Yeah. You've got to go out and start again from scratch and just do the searching yourself. And I'd go through some of those trusted. We've got some great Australian organisations yeah. that are very trusted, that we know them. And again, exactly as you said, go and find the information independently yeah. or go and find someone physically to actually give some of that money to rather than going and doing it. It's convenient to do it online. I get that. But I just, just hate the idea. Don't click on the link. Yeah, don't click skills. on the link. That's right. Good advice. S. W-A-L-K. That's how we used to do it in the old days, kids. Sealed with a loving kiss. You'd write out the love letter, close your eyes and plant a kiss on the seal of the envelope and your long-distance romance was as safe as houses. Well, these days in the virtual world, we need something more. Lovers can FaceTime, which is nice, but kissing the phone screen is cold and unrewarding and, well, just a little bit weird. Thankfully, a group of Chinese IT geniuses have come up with a solution to keep the spark alive, and it's not weird at all, Matt. Not at all. No weirder than you sealing an envelope with a kiss and spraying some perfume on it, maybe. Well, I'd never sprayed the perfume. Oh, but, didn't you? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that was your fault. That was, was your problem. Twelve-year-old <laughs> to my long-distance girlfriend. Uh, yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was what we did. Well, and I actually caught a few of our friends who were sending those letters back to themselves. Look at this letter I got. Look at this. <laughs> Hold on, that looks like your writing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so this isn't quite the same as that, but maybe it's probably better than that. There's a, a concept here that was invented by Jing Zongli, as you said, Chinese researcher at Chinese University. He had a long-distance girlfriend, and he was doing all the things you talked about, telephone, FaceTime, that's all fantastic, but then just felt that it wasn't quite enough. Now, there was a device that was invented and it was launched back in Malaysia back in 2016, which was a touch-sensitive silicon pad. So you could put one on your computer at your end, put one at the other end, and when you touch that silicon pad at one end, the person at the other end would feel the ah, touch coming through. That's but sweet. That's sweet, but it wasn't good enough for Mr. Jiang Zongli. So he decided that he would do something that was more intimate. Ooh, that sounds a bit creepy, but more intimate than a touchpad. <laughs> so he created some lips, some silicon lips, that had that same sort of touch-sensitive feature. So when you interacted, can I say that, interacted with lips? When you interacted with lips, then the person at the other end would feel the interaction coming mm. through. So the idea this would be... Weird. This, this isn't, isn't weird. This isn't weird one little bit. <laughs> the idea would be that you get on a FaceTime call, you kiss the set of silicon lips at this end, your yeah, girlfriend or partner at the other end kisses a set of lips down there, and you can feel the kiss coming through the lips. And it's weird, isn't it? Because we are okay with a verbal connection there, talking mm. to someone long distance. We've been doing that for a long time. And then we're pretty comfortable now with the video concept. Some people still don't get that they should have clothes on with those video calls, <laughs> or they get a bit confused about people being able to watch them. Bound to happen. Bound yeah. to happen, that's right. So we're getting more comfortable with that. For whatever reason, touch just still feels that a bit uh, yeah. funny there. So, but maybe that's because it's new to us. Maybe in twenty years' time, people will be talking just about this nice. tech talk episode twenty thousand. We'll be saying, "Ah, oh, there's another touch device that comes out. Gee, it's commonplace now." Or well, maybe you can smell the bad breath, the smell Can't. and the touch. That's right. Why mm. not? Yeah. So that was maybe an attractive feature, the smell, but maybe not the bad <laughs> breath there. So they're not out in the market yet. If you're really keen, contact Jiang Zongli and say, "Hey, you'd like to." help develop this because at this stage he said I've got it there it's working 
I don't have the know-how or the resources to develop this onto the market as a really popular device, I need some help from entrepreneurs out there. So he's looking for some help from people out there. If you think of the market. Something for everyone these days. Actually, I had a conversation with a guy the other day (laughs) who started up kangaroo jerky. So he was selling kangaroo jerky. Right. And I said, so why, of all the products you might be able to start in this business venture, why did you go kangaroo jerky? And he said, well, no one else has got it. I thought, that's correct. But there's lots of other stuff out yes, there that people don't, don't have. Don't it doesn't mean it's a good idea. <laughs> and maybe kissing lips falls into that category. No one else has got it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good idea. The age of robotics and AI is well and truly here, and the fear is that many of us are potentially going to have our careers on the line. Cue the pitchforks and flaming torches, folks. We're marching on the town square. Now, as the sword of Democles dangles threatening over our heads... We all rationalise with a stiff upper lip and convince ourselves that AI could never do what I do. We'll bow your head and raise a glass to the next of our comrades to fall, the bartenders and baristas of the world. Matt, tell us what the hell is a beverage printer? (laughs) Well, before I start that... This is the next thing that we have to learn how to destroy. (laughs) (laughs) Sound like a true Luddite there. (laughs) I want to have a quick discussion with you about the elements. And one of the points of debate is always how many naturally occurring elements there are. So the periodic table, of course, has got 118. Mm-hmm. There's always a little bit of debate. But a bunch of those you can only synthesize in a lab. So Correct. let's drop that back quite a bit. Anyway, right. so yeah. Well, that's the first question I have for you. I've got a number in my mind that I would say are the naturally occurring elements. And I'm interested to hear your number to see what you would think the number of naturally occurring elements are, because there's a range of about 10 plus or minus in terms of what people say are naturally occurring elements. So do you have a number? uranium's number 92, and that's the highest number of naturally occurring elements. But there are some that are below that that need to be synthesised, things like technetium, 99. So look, I'm going to guess, and I should know this, and I know I should know this, I think it's about... 88, maybe 89 naturally occurring elements. So I was going the cheats way. I was going to 92 just because you get to 92 and the 92nd. After that's transuranic, right? Correct. Exactly right. But there is a bit of debate there around maybe 88, maybe 89 being the number. Some people actually go above 92 because they say some of those synthesized ones may be in some rare circumstance in some area in the universe, maybe that element exists naturally somewhere. But let's say around 90, around that sort of number, 88, 90. So my point here is that we haven't got many different components that make up everything we see. You look around Mm, us, we can see a whole bunch of stuff and, well, I can see more than 90 different things around me. But, of mm. course, we take those... It's all about raw, the building blocks that they're made of. Exactly right. And they then make molecules, they make compounds, and they make everything that's all around us. So start with that basis and then look at drinks that we drink. Most of the drinks that we drink, forget about smoothie type of drinks, but soft drinks, alcoholic drinks, etc. they're mostly water. And then there's some other stuff put in there. Now, if I was a scotch whiskey aficionado, I would say, well, you need to have that scotch in the oak caskets for Uh, 50 years or some (laughs) amount of time to get the oak to bleed into the scotch and taste all perfect. But when you break it all down, if you analyse that, it would still be made up of just 
compounds that are made up of elements. So surely you can reverse engineer that. And that's exactly what a beverage printer, that was a very long answer go. to your question of yeah. what's a beverage printer. <laughs> so what so you've it's got- it's just about getting all those elements just in the right amount. Correct. And just mixing them into your drink. And that's exactly what the beverage printer does. Cana One is the actual model. It's available for sale right now as we speak. It's only about $900. So for $900, you can have a machine that sits on your bar, in your kitchen, wherever, and you press a button on the touchscreen to say, I would like a scotch whiskey. I would like a soft drink. I'd like a cola-flavoured drink. I would like a lemonade-flavoured drink. And it will then take the water that's already plumbed into it, and then mix that with the various components that are required to give you exactly <laughs> the drink that you asked for. So it should print the drinks on demand. I'm just thinking about because because compounds are made from elements, and that's fine, but, but some of the chemical reactions to make some of those compounds are a little bit more involved. So I'm just wondering how this thing works to be able to just magic these compounds from raw elements. Oh, they just magic them. I like that. That's They could use it in their marketing. <laughs> we just magic the compounds. Well, not, no, no. We, we, we hate to use that word in a science show, but uh, yeah, it, it does seem a little bit too too surreal, too, too simplistic, true to believe. Yeah, it, it does, doesn't it? A lot of the time is spent with this particular company doing the reverse engineering. So they take popular drinks and they take it in the laboratory and they say, what is this made up of? How do we arrive at this particular flavour? And they hope to break it down then to have the raw compounds. I don't think they go quite as far as the raw elements. I don't think they load a little periodic table into the machine <laughs> and say, there well, you go. I'm guessing the bulk of it is going to be carbon, oxygen, hydrogen with some nitrogen in there as well and maybe a bit of phosphorus. And um, Well, they could tell you what's in there, but of course they'd have to kill you afterwards yeah, because right, I'm okay. sure that's part of the IP. <laughs> but they, they sell canisters. So basically you put it in, you put canisters that you buy off them and you put the canisters in, so like a coffee pod but with a lot more in it, and then you just mix up those drinks. Now, the first thing I thought of was that I'm sure insert any brand name drink here would not like to have their name on the screen because then they're not getting the revenue. So let's use brand names. If I'm Red Bull, for example, mm. I don't want someone to go along and press a button on a machine that says, give me a Red Bull drink because how do I make any money? Yeah. Out of that? I make my money out of selling drinks. I don't want to make it out of that. They're actually licensing various third-party companies oh. so that you can go along and press a button when I looked through it, I didn't find any brands that were the big mainstream brands like a Red Bull, for example, like a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi. But I'm sure that Not will yet. Yeah. Yeah, that will get to that point. If they're getting enough revenue out of that, I'm sure that you'll then pay a little bit for it. But And here's the thing. It's a modern company, okay? Therefore, it's got to have an environmental message with it. And that's part of what they're talking about. It's not just the convenience of not having a a fridge full of drinks, a bar full of different drinks, because I've got my friend James who comes around once every month and he likes to have a particular Scotch whiskey. Well, gee, I've got to have that drink there for him and all my other friends. So the idea I thought, first of all, was just to have one thing that had all drinks. But they're also worried about the packaging of our normal drink processing. So when you go into the supermarket and there's a bisquillion different drinks to choose from or you go to the bottle shop, all the packaging, they say, in the world, we throw away 78 million tonnes of plastic just in packaging on drinks. Mm. That's not on the drinks. That's not the production of the glass to put all these drinks in. That's just on packaging alone. Mm. So this company, which sounds very nice of them, is just trying to save the world while they make some money out of selling yeah. their <laughs> beverage printer. But look, I haven't tried it yet. Obviously, I haven't. there's only just out available now. I haven't actually bought one of these yet. But 
I do like the concept of just take water, mix in the bits you need. If you love that beautiful oak flavour in your Scotch whisky, we'll put it in there by putting the right elements, the right. right compounds, the right molecules in to get it just right. I'd love to do some blind taste tests with some people to see how accurately they can reproduce a normal drink. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. Mobile phones were at one stage said to bring a revolution to the modern classroom. Like any tool, they have the capacity to bring great power to the individual with a mobile phone in their hand. But... With great power comes great responsibility, of course. And so many of in the field of education will attest, mobile phones have rewired adolescent brains. Already, many, many schools throughout Australia have imposed heavy restrictions on phone use for students in order to limit antisocial and anti-educational behaviours. So there is little wonder that New South Wales Labor government may be looking to potentially employ signal-jamming tech similar to that used in prisons in New South Wales schools. Matt, being particularly careful not to kick a hornet's nest here, what are the details? Well, it's interesting you mentioned prisons there because I did go for a tour through a prison, not as a prisoner, as a as a person visiting All right, the prison. Okay, not this just time. To, just to clarify there. Just visiting this time. And not visiting any relatives or friends. It was actually a, a technical tour of the jail. And I actually handed my phone in before I went into the jail and I was about to walk in and the guard that was taking me the tour said, oh, is that watch you're wearing connected? I said, yeah. He said, well, it's actually an offence to take, take anything off. in the jail wow. that's a communication device. So we probably should take that off you unless you want to commit an offence and then come back and visit for real. So I took it off very quickly. But that was a prison <laughs> that didn't have mobile phone jamming technology oh, right, in okay. the actual prison. But if you've got that, then presumably doesn't matter where you're watching, take your phone in, doesn't really matter mm. because you can't use the phone in there. And so somehow some prisoners managed to get phones into their jail and they seem to be able to use it to still run their business. So many birthday cakes. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Who needs Drop a file anymore? Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah, who knows what it is. But in a school system, there are schools, and this is across the nation now, that do a range of things to try and limit the usage of phones in schools. So some of them use a pouch. There's a thing called a yonder pouch and you drop mm. it in there. It's not like it's a Faraday cage or anything fancy like that. It's just somewhere to stop the kids touching it. But there are clips that people post that show you how to get around a yonder pouch. So mm. theoretically, you come in the morning, put in the pouch and it's locked up by the school and you can still keep it there so that you don't get your phone stolen or lost. But then there are these clips out there that show how you get a strong magnet to mm. undo the yonder pouch or even smash the actual locking mechanism on the ground hard enough and that will actually unclip the magnet on there so kids get around things yeah no kids get around things but just so long as the kids aren't you know if the kids aren't using it during the class time, it doesn't need to be in the yonder pouch at all. It could be in the bag or anywhere, couldn't it? It, it could it's, be anywhere. The, it's the idea of having that pouch and the, what comes with that, I think, that helps to maintain the the um, the order, shall we say. Yeah, that's right. So I think one of the problems is when you try and put other processes in place, kids are very good at getting around things. Mm, so yeah. the, the proposal by the new Premier, the was opposition leader at the time, but new Premier Chris Minns, was to just put a blanket ban on schools for mobile phones, high schools we're talking about here. But maybe technology is a solution rather than a mm. pouch or just saying to kids, don't use your phone in class or whatever it might be. And so the technology that's in use is that same sort of technology in jails where it does just block the signal. Now, when it blocks the signal, it's actually blocking via IME, so via the serial number, if you like, of a mobile phone. So it essentially, you set it up and it just blocks all signals from all serial numbers. But 
if you've got a teacher or a child, for whatever reason, that needs their phone, then you can actually use the same blocking technology to say, if you see this particular IME, it's allowed to go through. So it can be better than just blanket process of taking the phone off everyone that walks in the school or putting it in the pouch or putting it in your bag. It can be everyone, you're all blocked unless you've got a reason that you want to use it. And then we can actually allow that particular phone to go through and use the system. So a bit cleverer. Mm. There is a bit of a problem in that the Australian Communications and Media Authority needs to approve this technology yet, and they haven't done so. But again, we've got a new government now, so delivering on their promises, maybe this will start to be investigated quite seriously. So I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but if they get permission from the ACMA, then that might be something we see in schools, which I think would be absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it will be interesting to watch what happens in the weeks that come after. Yeah. And I, I don't want to stir you up too much, but I just I do worry a lot about how kids would access chat GPT during class if they didn't have their phone in their pocket. Oh, I can feel the hairs on the back of my neck bristling. These days, people, if you can't make something by 3D printing it, then you're probably working too hard. But what about a cheesecake? I hear you scream through the speakers. I love cheesecake, and you'll never 3D print a cheesecake. Well, folks, that may have been in 2022, you Luddites. But this is 2023, and we now live in a world where 3D printing cheesecakes is a thing, and almost anything is possible with a 3D printer. Matt, I'm a smidge peckish for a tasty techno dessert. What are my options here? Well, I haven't got one here, I'm sorry. So oh, you, no. You have to get one the old-fashioned way. But we have talked about it before. You've only got, we had the discussion about exactly how many naturally occurring elements, 92-ish. That's right. Thereabouts. Just and mix so, them together, spit them out in the right order. Exactly right. Now, I'm not saying that this particular 3D printer has got 92 elements loaded in. They've only got seven ingredients. So basically, you put seven ingredients into this 3D printer And you can print a variety of foods. Thermomixes are going to be a thing of the past. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) My wife loves a thermomix. But you've got, in this particular one, the seven ingredients, you've got crackers, peanut butter, strawberry jam, Nutella, banana puree, cherry syrup, and frosting. So you've got those seven ingredients loaded into this particular 3D printer. And then you say... 3D print me some cheesecake. Now, the interesting (laughs) part was that the first examples that I looked at were cheesecake, but it didn't look that attractive. (laughs) (laughs) It was a bit of a floppy. So you're prepared to wear the blindfold? Well, I think you're right. If you had uh, someone blindfolded and they had normal cheesecake and this, you'd put it on a spoon and taste it. You go, oh, it tastes fantastic. But it just didn't look right. And I think then the So it doesn't come out as a, a homogeneous sort of blob of all the same look? It kind of was. Oh, and right. they were the first one. So that was in the experimentation. And I looked at the process of this over a, a number of experiments in terms of trying to get it right. So all the ingredients were there, but it just didn't stand up. So they found they kept changing some of the actual mixtures and got to the stage where they increased the cracker portion from 32% to 70% and then improve the structural support for the cheesecake. Ah. And lo and behold, (laughs) they then had a cheesecake that came out, and just to top it all off, it had a little laser beam to lightly brown the top of it just to give it that perfect look. And once they got that right, (laughs) you had the cheesecake come out, and you looked at it, and you went, that's a cheesecake. That looks just the same as the cheesecake that I go into the Cheesecake Factory and buy off the shelf. And it tastes the same because guess what? It's got all the same stuff that's in the cheesecake as you would normally buy a cheesecake. How far away are we from printing vegetables? Yeah, a long Mm. way. I'm just not sure that we've got that technology yet. 
But when we talk about processed foods, let's face it, they're processed foods. So you can take those processed foods and mix them together. As long as you mix them together in the right way in some sort of 3D printer, then you're probably going to get a processed food. Well, any any sort of food is just a mixture of protein and lipid and carbohydrate and, uh, and these essentially organic molecules. If you can organise those, why can't you print yourself an apple? Well, I think you're right. Theoretically, but I just don't know yeah, how close they still we are. Gotta, they still got to be able to do it. That's right. Whereas with things like this that are processed, so if you've got sticky date pudding, if you've mm. got banana cake, if you've got chocolate cake, whatever cheesecake, I can see that they're much easier to do because you are taking processed foods anyway and mixing them together. So that makes sense to me. Again, getting fruits and vegetables. Wow, that'd be fantastic. Imagine some of the people starving around the world that mm. we can produce foods for. Apologies to any farmers out there at the moment listening in. But, but I'm thinking about a mission to Mars. You've got a six-month trip. It's so much easier just to pack all that, that protein into a, a, a tightly sealed packet without any airspace at all, yep. and you can be printing yourself cheesecake all the way to Mars. <laughs> That's right. 18 months ago, is it a six-month trip? Turn yeah. up 50 kilos heavier than when you left. <laughs> <laughs> so it is fascinating. 3D printing, we talk about 3D printing a bit with different things you can print, but 3D printing food, wow, that's, that's next level, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, we're going to kick off this week's look into the future with a quick and ironic glance back over the shoulder into the past. Half a century is a significant slab of time, and it's worth noting that some pretty big things are celebrating their 50th anniversary in 2023. For a start, the Sydney Opera House opened its doors in 1973, so it turns the big 5-0 this year. And in the US, the Watergate hearings kicked off 50 years ago. Now, Richard Nixon would not be the last president to find himself in very hot water, very topical this year in particular. The film The Godfather claimed top gong at the Oscars in 1973, and this little black duck was born in a chilly corner of New England tablelands. And the very first mobile phone call was made by Martin Cooper in New York. I wonder if he was talking about Richard Nixon or the Oscars, Matt. <laughs> well, What's the story behind the first mobile phone call? That's really interesting because... I've heard the story change from Martin Cooper. I've actually talked to Martin Cooper. I was, oh, you have? Yeah. You've met the man? Uh, well, not in person. Okay. By phone, obviously, because that's <laughs> how you talk to someone yeah, like right. Martin. But I was going to get him to Australia at one stage to do a, a promotion. Anyway, it turned out he was a bit too old and didn't want to travel all the way to Australia. But seemed like a lovely man. And, and I love the story that he's told over the years about the first phone call. So 3rd of April 1973 was that first phone call. Now, he worked for Motorola at the time. And, the and he wasn't yelling into the phone, bye, bye, sell, sell, blah, 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 like <laughs> no. we used to joke about in the 80s? No, no. Not, until, okay. <laughs> not until a few people on Wall Street started getting phones. But his big rival at the time was Joel Engel, who worked for Bell Laboratories, which was a, a part of AT&T. Now, the competition was going between Bell and Motorola to see who would be able to have this first cellular mobile phone. Bell were probably focusing more on car phone type technology more so than a handheld. Mm. And I say handheld very loosely because you needed to be Arnold Schwarzenegger to lift up one of these oh. handheld devices. Yeah, yeah. So Motorola decided that they thought the more portable version was a better way to go. I remember reading some stories, say, 20 years ago at the 30th anniversary where Martin Cooper told the story that he picked up the phone, sitting on a New York corner, and said to, like, ring Joel Engel, his great competitor, and said, Joel... I'm calling you from a cell phone, or Joel, I'm, guess where I'm calling you from now. But the latest version at the 50th anniversary said, hey, Joel, I'm calling from a portable 
cellular phone, which was different to the Bell Laboratories one that was in a car. So I don't know what was actually said. Mm. It was something Either along way, those it was lines. In your face, Joel. I think it was a bit of a gloat rather than, yeah, right. Joel, gee, look, we've really progressed this scientific field quite well, haven't we? I don't think it was like that. I no, think no, it, was no. a, it wasn't a sharing bit. anything about that. There was nothing we about it. No, there was, there was <laughs> none of that at all. So it has changed a little bit over the years, and there's no recording of it. And we have got some great historical recordings, we think, of some other firsts that happened in communication. So back in 1844, Samuel Morse sent a Morse code message, a, mm-hmm. a, a message to his assistant, Alfred Vale, that said, what hath God wrought? Mm. A little bit deeper than, hey, Joel, yeah, in your yeah. face. <laughs> thought long and hard about those words. <laughs> That's right. Alexander Graham Bell to his assistant when he made his first phone call back in 1876. Mr. Watson, come here. Can I want to see in? you. I want to see you. Yeah, that yeah. was really cool, wasn't it? That's right. <laughs> and the first text message, Neil Papworth. And Neil Papworth wasn't that high up in the company that he worked for. Uh, he was just I, super fast, was he? He got in there, pushed in no, front of everyone. I, I think it was just, it was Christmas Eve and it was, oh, we'll get around to this and we'll get it done. Oh, Neil, can you just send that message off to the boss, Richard Jarvis, who worked for Vodafone at the time, and he just said, Merry Christmas, which seemed appropriate at the time of the year that it mm, was. So we've got accurate recordings of some of those ones, but we just don't have an accurate recording of the other one. But 1973, it took about 10 years before you could actually go and buy a mobile phone. So that was the first phone mm. call. It was a prototype. It was obviously a Not network. practical. Well, not practical because there would have been one tower, if you like, it would have been one antenna mm. that Motorola would have had set up to tie back into the phone system. Not really that practical there. Ten years later, finally, you had... And it also came with go. a humongous battery pack, didn't it? You had to had a handbag that you had to carry around. Well, this one was a handheld, but it was 1.2 kilograms. So it was a fair old handheld yeah, to right. carry around. Yeah, yeah, right. They Later on, they got to the bag phone style that you're mentioning there. But the first one you could finally buy was a Motorola Dynatac 8000X. It was what commonly became known as the brick phone. It was huge. It was a bit smaller than that first one, but it was about 1.1 kilograms, so a little bit lighter, 23 centimetres long (laughs) was the height of the phone. And with that huge battery, it could give you 30 minutes of talk time. So not that impressive. <laughs> and then you want to recharge it, so 10 hours to recharge. So you do your little 30-minute phone call and then plug in for 10 hours. Right, I can hardly wait to get this phone going again. <laughs> <laughs> so having a few batteries would have been the go, yeah, maybe 10 or so batteries. I think you're better off just going down to Toy World and picking up yourself a pair of uh, a walkie-talkie or whatever. <laughs> that's maybe, that's right. Uh, the other thing is that they weren't that popular at the time because in today's money, about $21,000. So yeah. you didn't rush out and get them. Status symbol. Status symbol, definitely, and where you could use them, not many places, because the actual carriers had to start to build the mobile phone network. We mm. think we've got it bad now with various black spots as we travel around, where you can imagine then you'd have two corners in New York and a corner in Chicago or a corner in LA that well, you might use it. if there was any people walking around going, oh, this will never catch on. <laughs> I'm There's sure. No, they haven't got the infrastructure for it. Uh, there would be no infrastructure there. How could this possibly ever work? And, of course, now some carriers started to build some other towers. But it certainly changed a bit. We were actually quite early in Australia. We were quite early on the bandwagon. In 1981, we had the 007 system. It was called the... PAMP system, P-A-M-T-S, the Public Automatic Mobile Phone System, but it only worked in a car and it didn't actually hand off cellular to cellular. One of the big advances that was made with the cellular phone network was they reused the same frequencies. When you had non-adjacent cells, you reuse those same frequencies. So it meant that in this cell, I would use so many frequencies, then I'd travel to the 
adjacent cell and I'd use different frequencies and I'd keep traveling and the next cell along would use those same frequencies again that I had in the first cell. That was the real advancement with the cellular network. That system back in 981, which all numbers in that system started with 007, which was probably someone having a joke, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Surely from a James Bond perspective, someone went, this would be told by fun. MI5 to use that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, probably that's right. But 987, we actually got the proper cellular system. So it started in New York in 983, the cellular system that we kind of know today or the, the latest version of. But we got it in 1987, so not too bad. And you mentioned the Opera House from 1973. Well, the launch in 1987 was with skydivers coming down and landing at the Opera House. And the Minister for Communications of the day, I don't remember who it was, but he had the mobile phone there and communicated from there and said, isn't this wonderful? So, uh, yeah, the Opera House was involved again in 1987. Anyway, we've gone on from there. That was AMPS and GSM and CDMA and 3G, 4G, 5G. But Martin Cooper still has something to say and he's still talking about phones and talking about where he thinks they'll go. 94 years of age is at the moment. Oh, wow. But he still had a few things to say about where artificial intelligence will take us with mobile phones, augmented reality, holograms. He said in the next 50 years, as much as we look back now and go, wow, it's changed just a little bit from those first days in 50 years' time, his prediction which is probably pretty safe, is that people in that day will look back and go, what, they had that sort of phone, a <laughs> smartphone, all those apps on there? How silly is that? That just seems crazy. But it is better. I remember talking to one of my young staff members one time and I said something along the lines of, before we had a mobile phone, and then the staff member pulled me up, hold on, what do you mean before we had a mobile phone? Haven't they just been part of your life like electricity and cars ever since you were born? Went, no, 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 no. When I was young, if you want to meet a friend at a cafe or at the pub, you had to organise a time. Well in advance. That's right. call them at their house when they were home. And then if you were going to meet them at 10 o'clock and you turned up at 5 past 10, oh, they'd already been and gone. Or or should you wait for them? Should you try and catch up to them? It wasn't as simple as send a text, hey, I'm here, I'm a few minutes late, sorry. So that blew this young staff member's mind because they just thought their whole social life would have disintegrated if they had to be able to plan so far in advance. (laughs) So 50 years, as they just a a couple of weeks ago, 50 years to to the day when Martin Cooper made that first phone call. It's fair to say that I think we've been pretty fascinated, but even Martin Cooper's been fascinated by what's changed in that time. How happy are you with your TV these days? It seems not so long ago that a big old boxy 52-inch cathode ray tube with a remote control constituted a pretty decent TV. But times were much simpler then. Nowadays, in order to just enjoy an episode of, of Yellowstone, we all need something that packs a little more punch. When I'm watching Taskmaster, I want to feel like I'm sitting right there in a chair right next to Tom Gleason, feeding off his smarmy jibes. Matt... It's been a while since we last talked TVs. <laughs> what has Samsung got to offer now that my current TV doesn't already have? It's got the number 8 in it, the 8K TV. So yeah, right. That sounds impressive, but it what's does, it going to do it? for me? Well, I'm not sure that it'll do much for you. And this is <laughs> the really interesting thing. I actually sat down and did the calculations to see whether or not we could actually distinguish the difference with our good old-fashioned human eyesight mm. between... 4K and 8K, for example. Now, from HD to 4K, you can see that. You can see visually that, yes, that's a sharper image. 
4K to 8K? Mm. Oh, gee, I'm wondering. So Once that blade is sharp and so sharp, <laughs> it's cutting smooth in through everything. It, what are you going to do? Exactly right. <laughs> now, I actually went back and did a bit of research on that, and there was a launch that Steve Jobs did back in 2010, 7th of June 2010, and he made the announcement that they had a new retina display on the new iPhone, and he said, as Steve sometimes did with a little bit of hyper- hyperbole, that this was past the limit where the human eye could make out different pixels. Mm. Now, I think he was going a little bit over the top there, but I started to wonder our eyesight and the individual pixels we could make out. So I actually did some calculations on all of that, and I came up with this idea that if we've got 2020 vision or even 2015 vision, a little bit better than 2020 vision, what can we see? So, for example, at an 8K TV, and it all comes down to the size of the TV, with an 88-inch TV, you would have to be one metre from the screen before you could actually start to make out individual pixels. Well, that's that's as close as my mum ever let me sit. <laughs> actually, she, she insisted we were much further back than one metre. I think you'd actually have a problem with your neck at one metre from an 88-inch TV. Yeah, you'd be you can't see the whole picture. That's forth. immersive vision. It is immersive, that's right. So when we start talking about getting to the stage, and this new Samsung, they've got... 8K TV in 85-inch, 65-inch, 75-inch. At 65-inch with an 8K TV, you're almost on top of the TV before Mm. you're making individual pixels, if you can at all. So when you start talking about 8K, and let's assume that you're listening to your mother and you're (laughs) sitting more than a metre away from the TV, you're really not going to make out the difference with a 4K or 8K TV. A 4K TV at 75-inch, you've got to be less than two metres from it to still make out those individual pixels. So again, mm. you're sitting back at, normally I'd probably think you'd be sitting at four mm. metres from a TV, typically in a lounge yeah. environment, before mm-hmm. you're sitting down to a comfortable sort of environment. So when we start talking about 8K TV, you st- do start to wonder why do we really need them? Does it make a difference? And I hate to be saying this because technology, I normally say, just get it, whatever it is, just get the new technology. <laughs> upgrade, just yeah. upgrade regardless. But I think where we're really going here is this is 85-inch, at the moment, if you want to go and buy one of these Samsung 85-inch babies, $12,700 in Australian dollars. Mm. So not cheap. But I think where they're really going is when you see the differences, when you get to 85, no, maybe 100-inch, maybe 120-inch, right. that's when you really start to see where you really need these 8K resolutions because obviously as the TV gets bigger, mm. each pixel gets ever so slightly larger, and if you're sitting at that distance away, that four-metre distance, for example, you get the TV big enough, you might be able to start to make out individual pixels. It does sound good from an advertising perspective, though. <laughs> 4K TV, you need an 8K TV, <laughs> and we just happen to be the ones that actually have got it for you. But, but how big is a screen that's too big? <laughs> when you cannot fit it on your wall, I guess. Well, the next thing is that you'll have to be going into your white goods retailer and buying your TV with an upgrade for your lounge room because mm. you'll need a bigger lounge room, a bigger <laughs> wall in your lounge room before you say, well, I can't actually fit it in my lounge room, but it'd be great to have that 120-inch. Sometimes you might have those for display, commercial displays, for example. Yeah, right. But if you're a manufacturer of TVs, you're trying to manufacture to sell to a mass market. To a domestic market That's rather right. than the commercial market. If your right? only market is some TVs on display in a shop or out in an arena somewhere. You're limiting yourself. In oh, you're not going to sell that many, are you? So yeah. putting them in the domestic situation in, in a home environment, that's where you want to be. So you're right. I don't know 
whether 85 inch starts to get a bit too big for a normal lounge room, 100 inch starts to get too big for a normal lounge room. It does get to the stage where you feel like it encompasses your entire wall. That's right. And maybe that's what the plan is. Just when you're a wall, a checking structural. out a house, when you're checking out a house to either to rent or to buy, you've got to check out that lounge room wall just to see how big that lounge room <laughs> to see wall if is. You can fit. Uh, to see if you can get your TV. Measuring out the doors and stuff. That's right. This well, is, getting it in there too, that's part yeah. of the problem, isn't it? I've just got to take off some of your roof and rip out a hole in your ceiling just to get that TV in. Tail wagging the dog. I just, oh, don't <laughs> get it anymore. I don't understand the modern world. Oh, dear. Please, James, please. Uh, anyway, I, I should talk about the TV. It's a QN900C. 8K smart TV, it's their QLED technology that they talk about, which is the Samsung way of saying LED, but chuck a Q in front of it to make mm. it proprietary somewhat. Uh, nice TV, but I think the thing is with 8K, you then start to need to get your content in 8K. Now, I remember a couple of years ago, I saw that the Japanese broadcaster NHK, which is the equivalent of our ABC in Australia, they launched a new service that was broadcasting in 8K but they haven't got much content they can broadcast because most movies mm. aren't available at 8K, for example. <laughs> so there's a fair few steps to go through. Having the 8K TV sounds great, but then you've got to get some content providers. The broadcasting to be sent to you. broadcast in. it or stream oh, it wow. or all the rest of it. So it sounds really good. sounds pretty impressive down at the pub saying to your friends you've got an 8K TV. Yeah. Are you going to notice a difference at this stage? I'm not convinced, and I'm not convinced, I hate saying this, James, I'm not convinced that spending money, spending $12,700 on that technology is going to do a lot for you. I'm sorry. It's a status symbol, perhaps. Uh, Maybe. Maybe. We talked about it earlier, but with the Liddell Power Station in the Hunter Valley recently shutting down, a genuine fear has set in about how New South Wales will keep the lights on consistently over the coming years. For the boffins promoting sustainability, the answer will come in the form of diversification, with initiatives coming in all manner of shapes and forms. And one of them will be in the form of storing solar and wind power in giant gravity batteries. Matt, there are a couple of these already being built in China and the US. What's the deal with these giant gravity batteries? And that's what prompted this story. We've talked a little bit about the concept of these before, and they've built some in some small demonstration sites to just make sure it all works and the theory stacks up with the practical outcomes. But now you're spot on. There's one construction in China, one construction in Texas and the US. I'll talk a bit more about those, but I want to go back a little bit, first of all, because one of the things that frustrates me no end is when people talk about solar and wind, they, of course, say, well... What happens when the wind's not blowing? That's right. And the sun doesn't always shine. The sun goes down each night. You got me. And you know that there are all these people out there who talk about this baseload power. And it's one of the real frustrations I hear when I hear baseload power. The whole thing around baseload power was created by the electricity generators with coal-fired power stations because of one of the limitations of coal-fired power Mm. stations. You don't just flick a switch and you start getting electricity out of a coal-fired power station and then at night time I'll flick a couple off because we don't need so many. The start-up and shut-down, both of them are a day, maybe days long, depending on the actual technology in those coal-fired power stations. So the generator said, wow, we've got all this electricity at night time. Oh, what are we going to do with that? How can we use that? Because we're just wasting it. Oh, I know. Let's come up with off-peak electricity so we have the need for more electricity at night time and less during the day. 
that'll balance it out. And hence, we have this whole thing with baseload power. There were some pretty clever inventions, and it goes back to 1938 when the first ripple meter was created. So you had then meters for electricity, and then you put these ripple meters on, and they had the ability for the electricity generator to send a ripple down the line of a different frequency to turn on a ripple meter and then turn it off. And that's how you get the charging for off-peak. So, for example, at 10 o'clock at night, they would get a frequency come down the line. Oh, there's that frequency. I can now turn on my metering so that can start using off-peak electricity. Six o'clock in the morning, turn it off. But hold on, that's not good if everything comes on at the same time and everything goes off when that ripple comes through. So the ripple meters themselves, after they get the ripple notification, have a randomised amount of time before they come on, usually within minutes. So it's quite clever technology. And so that's how we've got off-peak, for example, hot water systems or off-peak slab heating systems. Some people even have their pool systems, their pool filtering systems hooked up to off-peak. So a whole range of things. But that's why we've got this base load of power because the generators had a limitation in coal-fired power. Now we've got a limitation in sun. We don't have sun at night time. And we've also got maybe not wind blowing all the time. So we've got to have some way of storing power. Now, forever and a day, Generators with coal-fired power would have loved to have a way of storing power because they're generating this power, they're burning coal, and we can't use it, so we can't charge for it. They would have loved to have a way of storing it, but the easiest solution was just to put more coal in and burn it, so they didn't worry about it too much. But now we've got the problem. So you've got batteries. Now, batteries aren't too bad, but the mining of all those different materials, some rare earth materials, critical raw materials, there's a lot needed for all these batteries. So mm. that may not be the best solution going forward. And they do have a lifetime. Batteries do slowly degrade. Their efficiency isn't too bad, about 80%. The other one we're seeing a fair bit of now is pumped hydro. And I get a bit frustrated. I, I'm very frustrated today, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> I get a bit frustrated when people say, oh, pumped hydro, that's the best way to generate electricity. I go, no, it generates no electricity. Mm. It stores electricity. stores electricity. So pumped hydro, of course, you pump the water up to a reservoir when you've got excess power, middle of the day, for example, and at night time when you need that power, you let the water fall down through a pipe, turns a generator, away you go. You go yeah. So pumped hydro is a great way. And again, pretty efficient in terms of that, but you need somewhere you've got a height differential and you need water. Now, water's being recycled. It's going up and down and up and down, but you still get evaporation. Mm. So you need some supply of water. So that's not perfect. But then we get to gravity batteries. And what I love about gravity batteries is the concept here is you take a large weight, a big, say, cement block, or in this case, they use some rammed earth, and you put it on some pulleys. And then when you've got excess power, you use those pulleys to lift the weights up. So you increase their potential energy, if you like, if you want Mm -hmm. to get scientific about it. And then when you need the excess, or you need that power that's been stored, it's stored as potential energy. You let that big weight fall, not just randomly falling off a cliff at 9.8 metres per second per second, you let it fall in a gradual fall, turning a turbine, and it generates electricity. So you're turning that potential energy into kinetic energy to generate power. Again, very efficient. So you're not losing much each time you do this. And so this is a great way to do it because all you need is somewhere that's maybe the size of an office block. So you, and again, depending how big you want it, and it just is a matter of the bigger you build it, the more power you can either store Mm. or generate at the same time. And if I look at these two examples in China and in the US, the Chinese gravity storage system they're building can store 100 megawatt hours of electricity and a maximum output at any one given point in time of 25 megawatts. The US one is smaller in storage, 36 megawatt hours, 
but its output is similar in terms of 80 megawatts. And with this, it's kind of a, a, an equation you can do about how wide you make the gravity storage device, the, the whole building, or how long you make it. So the wider you make it, the more pulleys you can put up. So that means the more output of power you can have at any given point in time, the more instantaneous power. The longer you do it, you can store more of the weights, so therefore you've got more battery storage capabilities. This is amazing. But sorry, can did you already say um, how we get the weights up high? So when you've got the excess electricity. So when uh, you're right. okay, sorry. middle yeah. of the day, you've yep. got solar power, go, wow, we've got too much now. What are we going to do with that extra power? Oh, lift some weights up. Yeah, so right. you lift them up, so then then stored at a high level. Of course, that The makes technology sense. in these is fantastic because you've got all these pulleys. And I, I saw one as one of the demonstration systems working, and you've got all these pulleys and all these weights, and there's just this constant motion of weights coming down, another one being yeah. moved in a position ready to go, and then it falls down. 1.9 metres per second they fall. So obviously the higher you can make the building, the better, within reason. But you just need to find an office block somewhere to build it. And in terms of raw materials... They make the weights, and these examples that are being built, they're 24 tonnes each is the mass of each of those, being strictly clear. It's not, that's not the weight, it's the mass of each of those. Yeah. And it's just highly compressed dirt, as I mentioned before. So it's not using up all of these fantastic raw materials. They compress the dirt. They probably put some sort of setting compound in there as well. But it's just these it's weights. so clever. It is, isn't it? And so this, in terms of a battery, is fantastic. So now we might have pumped hydro. If you happen to have water nearby, and some change in elevation, sure, use pumped hydro, it makes sense. You might have some chemical batteries somewhere, mm. but gravity batteries, they can be constructed out in the middle of nowhere, they can be constructed next to a wind farm, next to a solar farm, so they can have some sort of even out of the power delivery. You can put them in an office block, you can put them in the middle of a city if you like. So anywhere you want to build this, you can have it. And silent. And silent. <laughs> I can't see a lot of noise being generated by yeah. the pulleys and the turbines. I can't see a big smoke plume coming out the top of it like a coal-fired power station. So, yeah, silent. I mean, I just I love the concept. This will be really important, though. These two that are being built will be important just to see how much it will cost to build, mm. how efficiently does it work. I really can't see them having a short lifetime. A chemical battery's got a yeah. fairly set lifetime. You're wearing out components as they lift them up and down, so... You make sure what your bearings you are being maintained, but apart from that, it's and that not your lines out. Are, are all intact and and strong. Yeah, but uh, yeah. And the other really important part is if I store energy in a battery, a chemical battery, then I walk away and leave it, and I come back six months later, and it's not at one hundred percent. I've lost a little bit, so I do get a little bit of leakage. If I store energy in pumped hydro and walk away for six months, I come back and the top dam might be half full because that damn sun and evaporation mm. took some of that water away. But if I put these weights at a higher level of potential energy and I walk away for six months and I come back, I've still got all my potential energy. They haven't fallen yeah. a bit. They haven't lost some of their mass. They're all there waiting to go. When you need me, I'm here, whenever you like. So I've got unlimited time frame of storage. I've got a device that's got a long time frame to keep operating, surely, and it's a very efficient way of storing it, and I can build it anywhere. So what you're saying is the solution to this energy crisis is initiative. The solution is initiative, but also give it a little bit of time. I reckon we'll solve these problems about no wind and no, yeah. and no sun when we need them. Just the same as we solved the problem with all this coal-fired power being wasted in the middle of the night, we solved that problem with off-peak electricity, which... If you suggested that as a solution now, okay, let's make everyone generate their hot water after hours. But what about if 
I'm using the shower a bit during the middle of the day and I get a cold shower. I don't want a cold shower. Well, yeah. you should put up with it, sir. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, damn, this coal-fired power. It's no good. <laughs> it is so frustrating when a neat and very useful little piece of technology gets hijacked by the bad guys and used for no good. Just like the mobile phone technology of 30 years ago, AirTags now have Apple and Google working overtime to protect people from stalkers. Matt, a handy and very simple device, but a sneaky way for people to get up to no good nonetheless. And we've talked about a little bit before where Apple have introduced a system where if you're using one of their AirTags and using it for your own device, it's fantastic. Well done using technology in a smart way. But if I decide I want to stalk you and I just drop a little air tag in your briefcase or your handbag if you carry one, maybe in your car, for example, then on an iPhone, then you'll get a warning after a couple of days to say, by the way, James, there's an air tag that's been with you over the last couple of days, but it's not yours. Maybe someone's doing something untoward. And that's fine if you use an iPhone. Mm. But if you use an Android phone... We're cactus. That's right. Now, we know this is a big problem when Google and Apple have sat down and had constructive talks together. They don't like talking to each other normally. (laughs) They're a bit competitive, and so they'd rather not have any conversations. But this has been a big enough issue, and stalking with AirTags or a variety of devices Mm. has been a big enough issue that Google and Apple have actually got together and said, we need to solve this problem together. Let's, Let's... act like adults here and actually solve this problem so, so we don't have people out there having some stalker really give them a pretty hard time. Already the other Bluetooth manufacturers on the market, the likes of Tile and Samsung and Pebblebee, etc., they've already agreed to this standard. So if you're using one of those devices and you install an app on your Android phone or, or on your Apple phone, and that will do the same thing. It'll automatically alert you, whatever type of phone you've got, if there's an app on there, to say, by the way, someone's following you that's got this particular device. But again, with Apple, it hasn't happened until now. So from now, going forward, if you've got a Google phone and there's an AirTag near you for a couple of days, for a certain period of time, you will actually get a warning on your Google phone as well as your Apple phone to say that this AirTag has been following you for a bit too long. Maybe you want to do something about it. Then obviously what you do is go and find it. So you might need to search around through your belongings. Where is it in your car, as I said before? Maybe it could be somewhere, probably not on your body. You probably notice that. Maybe in the pocket of your jeans, your favorite Mm. jeans. Who knows? But there's one near you, so maybe you need to do something about it. And it's not if it's going to be near you for five minutes because every luggage handler at the airport... I was airport, just going to say, yeah, luggage <laughs> handlers walking around just getting these little alerts, oh, yeah, again. Another one. <laughs> so it's not as if it's beside you for five minutes. It's got to be a period of time. And I don't know the exact period of time, but I'm guessing a couple of days so that if it's someone that's left it near your body, on your body, on somewhere that you are regularly, and then mm. it's, it's coming up near your phone. So a baggage handler, if you fly every day, in that same airport and a bit of baggage lost there, maybe that would happen, but no, it's not going to be if it just... Yeah, I'm wondering if your job is to hang around in the the lost baggage um, storeroom <laughs> and how many alerts you'd get then. <laughs> and presumably <laughs> anyway, you go home at night. Small potatoes. That's right. But, but you go home at night and come back <laughs> yeah, the next that's day. Right. So yeah, good point. So <laughs> you're probably not near it often enough. But look, it's a good move because Absolutely, yeah. obviously we talk about a bit... There's some technology out there that's fantastic, but sometimes, yep. all the time actually, someone says, oh... I yeah. could do this with this now. We talked about them, people um, just popping them into like uh, what the tire in these uh, wheel um, well of a car and whatnot, and just tracking yeah. cars around. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And and people have robbed houses by that. They know when the cars yeah. away from the home, all those sort of things. But again, 
this is a couple of mega companies getting together to say, let's do some good for society. Fantastic. There's been talk now for a few years of this next piece of tech creating a real revolution. And good things come to those who wait, as my mother used to tell me around Christmas time. From a country where EVs are the norm, it stands to reason that charging up should be as smooth as the road that you're driving on. And that's literally the way they have gone in Sweden. By 2025, they'll have the world's first road that charges your EV as you drive. Matt, more bright sparks coming out of Scandinavia, huh? Absolutely. I love some of the concepts coming out of there. This is a 21-kilometre stretch of road, stretch of highway, that's going to be charging your EV. Now, there's been some trials done in a variety of countries, actually. You've had some done in Sweden. You've had some done in UK, Germany, Italy, even Israel. They've typically been fairly short sections because they've been trials. They've been Mm. trying different ways. And there's three main methods they've been using to charge your EV as you drive. The first one is a bit like a suburban train system where they'll construct overhead power lines and then your vehicle, and this is probably designed more for larger vehicles, trucks type of thing, rather Mm. than cars. They basically have a a trailing wire at the top and that'll just trail along on that wire. A bit like Dodgem cars that are shown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wow. So that's been one method they've trialled. Fairly easy to fit a vehicle with that because it literally is just a pole. That pole might fold down, for example, when you're not using it, and then yeah. when you enter this section, fold up, connects on there, rubs along there, puts some power into your car. I can't imagine it's charging it at an incredibly fast rate. Mm. The second method seems like a lot more work, and it's a bit like a slot car scenario. You'll have literally a slot in the road, and as you drive onto that, there'll be a piece that will fall down from your car and drag into that system, into that <laughs> slot, and charge as you drive along. <laughs> Those two systems they've trialled, They've had varying levels of success. I think the way they'll go, though, will be wireless charging. And that will involve constructing a number of coils underneath the road. And then your car will be fitted with a receiving wireless coil underneath the car. And as you drive onto that road, it automatically charges up. Just the same as we've got wireless chargers with phones, it'll be the same thing. Yeah, I think anything that comes with a physical link needs a little bit more maintenance on it, doesn't it? That would make sense. And just imagine trying to line up that slot into the yeah. or, or the, the thing that drops down into the slot. And again, that's rubbing, so there's more friction there. The wireless one makes a lot more sense. And people already are doing wireless charges with their EVs in their garages where they'll put a wireless coil on the ground. They might mm. plug that into their maybe a PowerPoint or maybe something where they need a bit more power than that. And they'll fit a wireless device underneath their car. So every time they drive into their garage, their car just charges up. You never have to worry about plugging it in. So that (laughs) sounds great. But going along a stretch of road is obviously the same sort of thing. Now, I am intrigued by one part. They're going along a highway. Sorry, now that third uh, way method is the way that they're going. Well, they haven't said that, but they have said we've been testing different methods and it seemed like the ground-based inductive charging was the method. They haven't made the announcement yet. But I, having read some of the trials I've done, I suspect that'll be the way they'll go. The interesting part, though, here is 21-kilometre stretch of highway. On a highway, you typically expect to be driving faster, maybe 110 k's an hour, for example, in Australia. I actually thought it would be better to have a very busy road where traffic is slower moving yeah. because the length of road, that's going to be the, the cost of putting this in. So the longer the road is, obviously, the the dearer that's going to be. If you want to charge up a car a certain amount of charging, then 
you want it to have as much time as possible. Yeah, so if it's so travelling slower. That's right. So a 21-kilometre stretch on the highway or a 21-kilometre stretch in a congested city where people are going like 20 kilometres an hour, that would make more sense to me. So I, I don't quite understand why they've gone on a highway. Mm. But one of the things that's really fascinating out of this is that you say, well, big deal, it sounds convenient, but is it really going to help much? Well, there's a study that's been done by Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden, and they said that they believe for cars that will be used in commuting, you'll be able to reduce the battery size by up to 70% because you won't need to charge as often and you won't need the range. Yeah, so if every right. day on your commute to work, you drive along on a road that charges up your battery, who cares if you've only got a 200 kilometre range, for example, because, well, I'll charge up that on the way and it'll be ready to go and then on the way home I'll charge up again. You only need the 200 kilometres for the bit that you're not charging up. Exactly right. And so if you reduce the battery size by 70%, then the cost of the car is obviously going to come down fairly dramatically as well because the battery is still a large part of the cost of the car. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. I really suspect that there'll be a fair amount of movement on this once you see a few places set up and working. So there'll be a decision being made by any company, or sorry, any company in government that's building a new road in the future, which will be new road being built, what type of method, not do we put it in, what type of method of charging do we put in for that particular road. I don't know how they do the costing of this. I don't know how you get to pay for the electricity use. It may be some government initiative where they say, we want people to use EV, so it's going to be free to everyone that drives on that road. Mm. Or it may be something where you'll have an account. I'm sure it would be similar enough to set up where it only activates when your car authenticates itself against something there to charge you while you go on it. Well, I wonder if there's also going to be an issue with, say, Lenz's Law. So we've got coils that are in the road that are, I assume, uh, operating sort of uh, with uh, an alternating sort of current through them. So they create a magnetic field of their own, which will induce a magnetic current in your car that is going, sorry, a magnetic field um, from currents in your car. And you're that will slow, slow down. Yeah, right. So you're going to have to work a little bit harder to get across that road. I wonder, I just wonder, I'm spitballing here. Yeah. But anyway, some yeah. questions to be answered and, and we'll find out what happens in Scandinavia. It's a, it's a really interesting question because I haven't seen that discussed in any of the information I've read about the wireless charging in the roads, mm. it'd be pretty difficult. No, it wouldn't actually be because you know how many kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres your car is using and that's mm. fairly solid information that comes through on your dash of your car to tell you your efficiency. So if suddenly that went up by a couple of kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres, you go, oh, well, this is great, I'm getting some charge here, but I'm actually using more while mm. I'm driving through that. So interesting mm. concept. Anyway, it's there's things happening out there. Yeah, very good. will help to save you some refrigerator heartache. Next time you're at the fridge, maybe think about throwing that stuff in the takeaway container that was has been there for two months. And what about that bag of bacon that you're not sure about? And the veggie crisper at the bottom? Just how long is a zucchini supposed to last unattended? Use by and best before dates are a guide and have always been a fallback for us. But really, folks, your food can't read a calendar. It's all a bit of a guess. So now a biodegradable food wrap has been produced that changes colour as the food spoils. Matt, the days of guesswork for tonight's dinner are behind us. And this is absolutely vital to my marriage. Yeah, right. <laughs> We've all got fridges like this. <laughs> we have things in our fridge that have got use-by dates. Yep. That's fine. And I see the use-by date as a guide and probably a few days after. That's right. They probably, can't read a calendar. That's right. But Yogurt also, doesn't read a calendar. More to the point, I say to my darling wife, that surely 
the people who put that stamp on there of that date have got a little bit of wiggle room built in yeah. because they don't want someone getting sick and then suing them because they used it on the day. So I reckon I've got a couple of days, Grace. They're going to have That's some it. wiggle room built in there. That's right. They don't want to get sued and so the, the used by is actually a couple of dates earlier. Surely, surely. Yeah. That's my logic. Maybe now, a my, week. Who knows? It could be. That might be pushing That's it. It's a very grey line. <laughs> and best before just means it's best before. It's not off now. But it would have been better if you had it before that. That's day. right. Now it's okay still. Yeah, it's but still it would have okay. been better last week. My wife takes the extreme opposite view where she says, Well, if it says that date on it, that's absolutely the last date. And if they got it absolutely <laughs> right, we'd better fudge a couple of days beforehand. So there's probably a week in between when I'm happy to use those foods <laughs> and when my wife's happy to use yeah, those foods. Yeah. So we need something more accurate. So you've got your side of the fridge and your wife's side of the fridge. <laughs> I think it's And everything that, that she's finished with, she just nudges across to yours. Well, there's a perfect logic in that, isn't it? You go from your side yeah. and then it just moves on down the fridge to my side before it finally moves into the garbage bin if you haven't eaten it by then. But we could probably save a lot of people around the world that still don't have enough to eat if we didn't throw that food mm. out, if we knew a bit more accurately. And that's exactly the case here. They've created this material that's made of some silk proteins and some covalent organic frameworks, which I'm not that familiar with. You may be more familiar with those. Well, covalent's just a type of bonding, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're made up, in, in essence, you've got a, a porous material that's got carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen arranged in, in a certain way, so that exactly as you said in the intro, the packaging itself will change colour as it detects certain things being emitted from the food. Now, obviously, you've got to design the packaging to suit the different types of food. So meat would put out certain things when it's getting to a certain level of decay as opposed to a fruit or maybe sense. a vegetable. So yeah. you would design it for each individual one. But once you wrap it in that, then you can put it in your fridge, open up, use it, wrap it again, and it will stay transparent until it starts to detect some of these various compounds being put out by the food. And then it detects those and changes colour. So then my wife and I can say, mm, it's gone that colour. We really should just have one more, yeah. one or two more days now. <laughs> well, it's a big one for the supermarkets because the supermarkets must throw out an awful lot of stuff, mm, right? And point. so I know in some countries, uh, I know in France that they had a program um, in some cities in France where they were feeding the homeless with stuff that was no longer really sellable but um, still okay. And this would be able to be a better indication. Yeah. Now, what you were talking about before with those molecules as well, I reckon it's probably going to be very similar stuff between meat and whatever else you've got because the bacteria, and there are small amounts of bacteria in any sort of fresh food, um, that, that's the thing that causes the rot. Uh, bacteria or other decomposers, maybe a fungus or whatever. And so it, they're just going to be giving off a uh, certain gas, maybe a little bit of methane maybe, or something like that. Um, and and the, the, the packaging would be detecting that sort of stuff. I'm That'd be even better. And I imagine that it was different. And only because when I was reading some of the research, they talked about some of the, the tests they were doing with chicken and how the colour changed at certain temperatures with chicken. And then they went in to say that they did some tests involving soybeans, for example. Now, mm. it may well be that they were testing a range of things, testing for the same product. And I was actually making an assumption there that the different products would give off something slightly different. But I think your logic is better, that it's probably the same problem. You're trying to not have bacteria in there. Yeah. So if there's a certain level Well, now the bacteria is there. You can't get rid of all bacteria in fresh food. Um, and so um, that's why we keep it cool. It just keeps the activity of that bacteria very, very slow. Um, but after a while, you just lose the fight. Yeah. So when there's so much bacteria there, it then starts putting it, as you say, yeah. certain chemicals, which then can be picked Large up. So amount, it may yeah. well be that it's the same packaging for every type of food that might be in there. And I don't know whether it's different, whether the amount of activity from the bacteria in chicken has a different effect than the amount of bacteria mm. in soybeans, for example. But 
we're not doing the research here. Someone no, else that's is. Right. Someone else has and, done it for and they'll us. they'll come out with some plastics. That we'll see our foods wrapped in the supermarket one day and we'll go, there we go. When that changes to yellow, mm, getting close, goes to orange, yep, throw it out now. Yeah. Which I think is absolutely brilliant yeah. in terms of a way to basically increase the amount of food that we've got available to us across the world. Yeah, we might find out just how wrong those use-by dates were. <laughs> that might be good. I can see divorces coming up all <laughs> over the place. You'll never make money playing video games is that parent parental advice that is ageing like milk. My apologies to parents who are looking for that hook to draw their, y- y- your young and away from the Xbox, but these words are becoming more and more of a lie each day. The eSport arena just keeps on expanding and expanding, and young aspiring folk can now do a degree course in eSports and earn a lucrative position in operations in the multi-billion dollar industry. Matt, eSports have become so much more than a pastime for easily distracted adolescents. Now, my son does listen to Tech Talk, so can you just turn off for the next five (laughs) minutes, please? (laughs) Because exactly as you said, stop playing games, go and do something that's going to be a good career for you. (laughs) But with eSports around, there are are some of these athletes, I'm I'm not sure if athletes is the right word, but let's call them athletes for the time being. (laughs) If uh, want of another substitution, yeah. (laughs) Some of them are earning seven-figure sums playing eSports, sounds incredible. (laughs) And of course, that's all well and good, that's a nice hobby to my that's son. a very small number of a large group of people, isn't it? It is. That's absolutely correct. Okay, but, that, but, that's the message. But you want something that's useful. Go and get a, an education, son. Yeah, but now right. you can get a degree in esports. Now, my first impression is that, what, three years playing games? That sounds pretty fantastic. <laughs> but they have actually thought about it a bit more than just playing games for three years. It's two years and nine months of playing games. No, no, I'm sure it's, <laughs> it's much more sensible than that. They actually look into a, a range of things. So behind-the-scenes roles. Yeah, so, so in order to get this big organism to work, this esports organism, it's just like any other sport, that they need a whole lot of other people making it all happen. And when you think about it, it's such a good point, I hadn't thought about it, when you think about athletes going through in what I'd call more traditional sports, and if you had a friend or one of your children that said, oh, I've been selected to go to AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport, isn't that fantastic? Mm. You'd be very proud of them. Absolutely. In this case, you go, well, you can get a degree and keep playing that sport you love. So we should be very proud, but I'm just not convinced. It just, just, <laughs> I'm going off a, to get a degree it'll in It'll be e-sports. a while before it aspires the same sort of uh, pride. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I always think about the telling of your grandparents. Go and tell your grandparents how well you're going at school or whatever it might be, but go and tell your grandparents that you're doing that's a degree true. in playing sports really on a computer. <laughs> good at video games. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But they do do some things in behind-the-scenes stuff. So they go and look at organising a tournament. How do you go about that? Because you can just imagine the logistics of organising one of these tournaments. Huge job. So they learn about that. They learn about the mental health and well-being of some of these esports players. Same with any occupation that's got high pressure associated with it, whether it be a sport or any occupation, Mm. then there are some people who suffer some pretty severe mental concerns around that. So they work on that so that when these people come out of this three-year degree, it doesn't necessarily mean that all they're going to do is go and play esports, they might find as they're going through their degree that they're not actually quite as good as they thought they were. So they can't earn those seven figure figure sums. They might Mm. be able to 
earn a few dollars and maybe earn nothing, but what am I going to do for a career? Well, there are people who obviously organise it. There are people who manage teams, who example, put teams together, go and get sponsors. So all these other behind-the-scenes roles, not just the people playing the games. So I don't mind that well, idea Well, they get either. big crowds to come and watch. So oh. assuming you've got to have big screens to be able to watch those as well, so there's a lot of IT support that's required there, I'm guessing. Yeah, and even this is over at Angus College in Dundee in the UK, and for example, part of this whole process they're doing to make the university stand out in this arena is they're building a 4,000-seat esports arena dedicated for their students, obviously, and they'll be able to organise tournaments there and get practice organising all that and the Mm. technology behind the screens. But part of the reason for all of this is that the industry, you mentioned billions there, you're spot on, the industry is projected to be worth $1.9 billion by the year 2025. So this, we, we kind of laugh about it now or scoff at it a little bit, but maybe Dundee in the UK is way ahead of the rest of us. And this will be something that the University of New South Wales and University of Sydney will be running esports degrees in before we know it. And here we are, little old Dundee over in the UK is leading the way for the rest of the we'll world. we having esports arenas built in our big city centres and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, wait and see. You may have heard about this next story on the news recently. The Beatles are headed back to the charts with Paul McCartney raising John Lennon from the dead and releasing a brand new song with some never-before-heard never lyrics. Matt, not so much dabbling in the black arts going on here, but a bit of AI-assisted creative flair, shall we say? Isn't it incredible? We're still talking about the Beatles. Yeah. They haven't been together since the 60s. And we're still talking about John Lennon was assassinated in 1980. And here we are, 43 years later, still talking about the Beatles and John Lennon. So there was a tape that Lennon made that had a few songs on it. Yoko Ono had it. And on the tape, it was basically written for Paul, for Paul McCartney. Mm. And from that, they did actually pull two songs off it back in the 90s, back in 95 and 96. They pulled off Free as a Bird and Real Love. And there was a good enough quality on that tape that they could pull John's voice off that. They could take the music from that and use the other living Beatles that were there at the time and have two new releases of the songs. I don't know how well they did in the charts. I don't remember those two songs in particular. Mm. But there was a third song on there and the quality just wasn't good enough. They couldn't extract John's voice well enough, and so they gave up on it. They said, look, we've got two songs 15 years after John died, so that's okay. But now, here we are 43 years later, and Mm. McCartney's obviously been approached by someone with some pretty clever AI, and they've said, we reckon we can take that other song that wasn't quite good enough quality before, pull John's voice off it, pull all the background noise out of that, then put together a song that you can actually make as a Beatles song. It is amazing. And it gets it gets better or worse, I'm not sure which. Apparently some of the background noise is from where Lennon was doing some of his recording. There was a bit of electricity noise in the background. It wasn't a great recording studio. It might have just been a little studio he had in his home kind of thing. So that noise in the background, that was pretty easy for AI to pull out because mm. it was at a fairly constant frequency. So, well, that's easy. We'll get rid of that. Then other background noise and then clean up his voice. We haven't heard it yet. But Paul McCartney's talked about it and said, there is one more coming, one more Beatles song to come. (laughs) This will definitely be the last one. But it gives you an idea of the power of AI. There were some pretty clever producers back in 95 and 96 when they released those other two Beatles songs. 
people that have had their head buried in the music industry for decades, mm. and they were able to work some magic with those two songs, but they couldn't quite get it with the third one. But now you throw a bit of AI into the mix. Here's John's voice. They gave it some samples of John's voice. That's what we're listening for. Go and pull that and get rid of everything else. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, again, I'll be very interested to see how it sounds and how close it sounds to John's voice. Having said that, Paul McCartney in an interview recently did talk about the fact that there are lots of new Beatles songs out there, Paul. He's been approached by lots of people where they've used AI to recreate John and Paul's voices, yeah. the Beatles sound, and they've created new Beatles songs, a bit like you and I did for our 100th episode where we just did a bit of yeah. AI and recreated our voices. <laughs> People have been doing that with John's voice, with Paul's voice, and Paul said, I've heard some of these songs, and they sound pretty good, but it's not me. It's not John. It's yeah. just AI creating and it. And then what does it become? It becomes people feeding off someone else's success. Mm. Um, to create uh, something new, and and there's a lot of, I don't know, is that art? Is yeah, how <laughs> do we how do we regard that? That's the question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Taylor the Swift, artist? Taylor Swift has been quite clever. She said, "Use my voice if you like. Use it for AI. Just give me a cut of all the sales <laughs> that you get out of that. So <laughs> let's adapt it and let's embrace it." Mm. And that's a wrap on a wondrous walk down the 2023 memory lane. Thank you, Tech Trailblazers, for tuning in to today's special episode of Tech Talk. It is a privilege to present these poignant pieces from the past year. Remember, technology is not just about gadgets and gizmos. It's about connecting people, powering dreams, and pioneering progress. Stay tuned for our next nostalgia-filled episode, featuring the finest from the latter half of 2023. Until then, keep challenging the status quo, stay curious, and continue to be the change makers in the tech terrain. Farewell for now, and may your future be filled with fantastic feats of innovation.